This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. 
their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show fellow firefighter and podcaster, Pete Wakefield. Now, Pete is a veteran firefighter in the UK and is also the host of the Firefighters podcast. So we discuss a host of topics from some of the notable guests and stories he's had on his show, the British Fire Service, Firefighter Fitness, the Firefighter Challenge, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 650 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Pete Wakefield. Enjoy. Well, Pete, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. James, it's a pleasure, brother. I've been a massive fan of yours for ages. And like we said on a previous conversation, you're kind of like, you're like three or four years ahead of me. So it's a privilege, brother. Yeah, well, privilege is all my mate. Like I said, I'm just, uh, just like you. We're all firefighters that are sick and tired of, you know, watching mental and physical health issues affect our community and just want to roll up our sleeves and do something about it so um the pleasure I'm, is mine. i was just as concerned about them the amount of times we've caused these to ourselves as well you know some of the conversations we've had before and listening back to some of your injuries and, and some of the challenges i've been through there's so many stuff we face but so much of it is also self-created as well and i think that that's a fascinating thing that i'm interested in is getting into today yeah well i think i mean we're about the same age so a lot of things that I discuss on here, it's not even so much bringing these radical new ideas that no one knew until 2022, 
but reverse engineering all the fucking bullshit that we were taught when we were young <laughs> and going back to our like our grandparents great grandparents era where they actually knew how to move properly how not to yeah. sit still all day how to read how to to eat you know know where their food came from so it's it's, it's deconstructing a lot of the stuff that we were taught it's crazy as well, though, how, how so many of our efficiencies, they say efficiency is smart laziness, right? But our efficiencies have gotten us to a point now where we have managed to engineer out a lot of the fundamental human aspects that gave us those strong characters, that gave us those those, um, those strong physiques that also just that, I mean, my old man, he ran a building firm for like 45 years, never really got sick or anything like that, but he worked outside, you know, 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week. And now we create these, these wonderful homes, these, you know, and it softens us so much. And it's trying to strike that balance between going back and trying to be the Gogginses of the world or any craziness like that. There's somewhere in between. And sometimes I think we just overshot that by a mile with our own justifications of trying to make it easy for ourselves. We're just trying to be smart. And then we create these other problems for ourselves as well. Yeah, I think the world of efficiency, you get the the biohacking you know the the life hacks and then, and then you just you know you listen to these real experts and i just had russell foster on who's one of the, the fathers of circadian rhythm research and, and sleep medicine and you listen to him talk i mean the metric that that world goes by is still sleepiness now that's different from chronic fatigue and you know t hormonal disruption and all those things that come with our line of work but you know basically the best metric isn't your apple watch or some of these and you listen to him talk about that the technology of that is actually completely unfounded it can tell mm. when he went to sleep because you stopped moving and it can tell when he woke up because you started and that's about it as far as the actual science behind that but you and i both know when we wake up if we slept well or not if we slept long enough or not purely on how we feel the next morning and that is the true life hack of sleep for example do you ever find though um and I'd be interested to hear your perspective from the emergency services factor around, you know, some people say they're night owls and you get those, uh, like, are you, what would you say you are? You're an early bird or a night owl? I would say more of an early bird. Yeah. So the fact that you're an early bird versus the night owls, it's probably something to do with how you establish yourself as a protector in your community. Not saying you're better or worse than anybody else, but historically from my limited understanding and from my readings, people would have to sit night watch, even as a tribe. If we were a tribe of monkeys just sitting around, somebody's got to sit up during the night because that's why we're scared of the dark because the cats come out at night and they're going to come and get us. But the big, more primitive, and I say big just because back then it was that aspect of who could protect the tribe. They would have first choice of mate, first choice of meat. You know, they would eat first and they would have sex first and all that sort of stuff. But the weaker members of the tribe would be asked to stay up during the night to keep watch. And then if something comes, they need the well-rested person which back then would have been more physically capable to be able to go out and fight that person so i wonder if there's some historical um generational stuff in the way that protectors have become more early birds and that's why you see so many people going out doing these early workouts and because i've always been been an early bird but like you said about the creation of like indoor light or more specifically when we say about your circadian rhythm how that has affected us and how that kind of distorts the world of the first responder as well because we live in a world where, I mean, it's a 24-hour society, right? So when do you find time to reconnect with your circadian rhythm? And we're just so lost. And you almost feel, you almost feel for your body. If your body had its own voice, what, what would it say to you? You know, you're asking it to achieve the world. You're asking it to do everything. And it says, yeah, great. Okay, so just make sure you do your part. Like, give me the fuel, give me the resources, give me the rest. And I'll do all the things you've asked me to do. And then you throw it 
some drabs. You, you, you come up short on your order and expect so much from it. And I know you said, I mean, you released, you recently released some uh, blood work, right? On the difference between when you were serving versus now. I mean, that, that's a colossal difference and you look better as well with the greatest of respect you 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 were rough when you left i remember you said about your wife and i remember reading in the book you know how much time you took away from your family and your children and the, de the debilitating aspect that had on your health and your testosterone as well right yeah so when and it's funny because when when i speak to a lot of responders um young guys you know i mean obviously uh, male and female testosterone limits are different they're still just as important but as far as the metrics i'm only familiar with the actual numbers of the men um but a lot of them are in the 300s and we're talking about guys in their late 20s early 30s you know and forward and what's crazy about that scale is a guy dr kirk parsley i had on the show who's a navy seal and a sleep medicine you know guru as well and he said that that metric came from a study in the Northeast, somewhere near one of the Ivy League schools. And so that lower and upper range, the upper range is the, you know, the 18 year old high school football player. And the lowest range is sedentary, you know, 80 year old that's, you know, just sitting in a chair waiting to die. And so you have this, you know, this metric. So people go, Oh, you're, you know, it used to be, Oh, you're in, you're in the range. You're, you're 200 you know, 30-year-old firefighter. And as you think about it, 30-year-old firefighter should not be 200. They should be closer to the other side. So we had that issue. Now it's done a complete 180 where we have this exog exogenous testosterone industry. I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but here in the US, people are just profiteering. You go in as a responder, you're testosterone's in the toilet. There's no discussion on exercise, sleep, time in nature. Um, well, because you, know, you can't sell it either. You no, can't sell that. No, exactly. You can't sell sleep. Sleep, there's no there's no profit to be made in those aspects. And I do feel for it as well, because I mean, NHS you know, in the UK is, is obviously provided for us, which is wonderful. But you, you when you go to somebody, they're going to use the tools they've got. So you go, I mean, my brother-in-law is a paramedic and I have a great deal of admiration for those people. But you go to a doctor, they've got the tools. They're going to cut you or they're going to medicate you. You go to you know somebody like yourself who has done a deep dive into those more holistic aspects of what our human um, physiology and biology needs. It will perform better off those aspects. So I appreciate that they're placed in a very difficult position, but when you've then got that capitalist aspect behind it, you can't sell sleep. You can't sell those aspects of it. And we keep trying to regenerate these fads around diet and nutrition. And I'd be interested to hear, I mean, what's your protocol now in terms of, of what you eat and how you train? Because some of the, the challenges you've had with your back injuries and then trying to restabilize your body after that, you must have explored various different things. And some of the stuff we'll get into about the testosterone abuse that I did, I'm worried about or curious about what that's going to look like in the future. Yeah. Well, so with the... The, what I've done differently in the last four years, almost nothing. I've just slept in my own bed every night. So that's what's been a real mind blower. My, my testosterone is higher. And I, are you looking at me like I'm not someone you'd think would be dripping of testosterone? <laughs> I'm 170 pounds, <laughs> six foot tall. Um, and have my hair, you know, so it doesn't have that kind of, you know, um, what they call it? Endomorph, I think it is, uh, element yeah. to it. But anyway, so, but mine was 520 when I had it, right? And I just, just, um, got hurt so i was off a little bit but i was awake with uh post-surgery you know knee injury stuff so i wasn't exactly sleeping well still um when i so when i retired it was just four years of doing the same stuff crossfit and eating well and mindful practice and uh, foundation training which we'll get to in the back but so 520 when i was on shift i just had it done the other day and it was 860 which the top level is like 1100 i think at 48 years old. So that was the thing I wanted to tell everyone was just simply before you go 
and decide that's the only route for you with the testosterone explore all these other elements and if you're a responder and you just feel like shit and you know you're you're starting to really be frustrated with the way your organization is run and let's say you've got 15 years in or 20 years in whatever understand a lot of people commented yeah i've still got 10 i've still got 20 years to go no you don't you you are making the decision to stay you could literally leave tomorrow now would you have to you know refigure some finances and stuff <clears throat> excuse me some finances well, there's always a cost isn't it there? there's yeah. always a cost there's but, a cost both ways exactly but what's more important you know the time with your family your health or you know doing what you've always done and that's, that was the thing so when I stepped away you know I knew I felt better but that metric was just one of those kind of aha moments to put out there like hey you know I talk about this stuff I bring these experts on but here's a little kind of self-explanation self-testimony the only thing in my life has changed is sleep. But that's had a ripple effect. Like my alcohol use has diminished incredibly now, which has given me better sleep. My caffeine use, therefore, has gone down. So there's, you know, other compounding factors. But removing shift work from my life was the key, you know, denominator that changed. Well, that's where you get into those sort of lead and lag metrics, isn't it? Where one thing is a cascade domino effect of so many others when we're getting into those marginal gains and stuff like that. But one thing we haven't discussed is, and, and I've never had mine measured, is that aspect of cortisol as well. You know, that the the really destructive long-term chronic effects of feeling that stress, because historically it was only supposed to be, you know, it's that sort of fright or fright response, isn't it? it? It usually gets dumped in there with all of your adrenaline and, and you know, um, neuropinephrine and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's, it plays a massive role, but it demands a lot of energy from your body. So it switches everything else off. It's supposed to be that, oh, there's a rustle in the bushes, saber tooth tiger jumps out, bang. There's, there's dump all this adrenaline in there, drop the cortisol in there, sharpens all your awareness, switches everything else off. So in order to recruit that, energy it doesn't just bring out of nowhere it shuts off your digestion you know it shuts off your hair growth it shuts off all of those aspects it shuts off your defenses you know your immune system that's why we're supposed to have it in there for such a short period of time but like you were saying when people are now putting themselves in positions and it's so sad to see it in some aspects of the emergency services where they're not having that big surge it's like it's like they've got it on an iv there's like they've got it on a drip for certain people so if your body is constantly still switching the light switch off of your immune system, of your growth, of your digestion, that aspect of it, I think, is what the colossally thing is. But for some people as well, when they first joined, they 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 still romantically have that ideal. I mean, I I still love what I do as a, as a frontline responder, as a firefighter. But I've had to continue to evolve because as 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 humans, we are little, you know, we're little problem solvers. We're little dopamine machines. We have to have some aspect of progression, some aspect of I can see my life is. Developing towards something, I'm learning, I'm growing. But if you don't have that, you just get that drip. And if you're just taking that drip time after time after time, I, I feel for you because it's uncomfortable, but sometimes it's not uncomfortable enough to leave. It's the analogy of you hear the story of the guy when he walks up and the guy on the porch is sitting there with his dog and the dog's groaning. And he's like, dude, what's up with the dog? He says, he's sitting on a nail. So why don't he move? I said, well, it doesn't hurt enough. And so many people live in that messy middle. So many people live in that, I'm uncomfortable, but I'm not uncomfortable enough to move. And there's so many factors within that because you yourself, you had some physical discomforts and stuff like that, but what made, cause you could still be working operationally now, you know, at your age, what made you take that move? Because I always wonder, and you said to me, you know, the other day that one of the biggest freedoms with, with the success of the podcast was your ability to step away from your career that you'd done for 15, 16 years and now 
pour yourself fully into sharing the message of other people. But in doing so, there's almost a death of the identity there. So how, how did you deal with that? Because that petrifies me, I'll be honest. That, so I'm a big believer in something bigger than myself. So universe, God, you know, whatever like people like to, to label it at. And my journey was definitely steered to the point where, sorry, my German shepherd's freaking out outside, um, <laughs> to, uh, to the point where the decision was kind of taken out of my hands. It was ironically the same with my divorce. So I discovered a fact and therefore it made it, you know, there was no other option Untenable. to find yes to, yeah. to, to to you know step away from that and and uh you know change my direction but anyway it was the same with this the last fire department i was at um protected a very famous theme park here in america and was the most complacent fire department I ever had the misfortune of working for and that sounds harsh but i mean it is what it is i'd worked for an incredible department in a california right before well, actually well, a little ways before um which i think was one of the best departments in the country so i had this very unique um lens of you know best worse and, and a couple in between and when you start trying to make positive change and you are hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock and it's all coming from you know, selflessness and you're not trying to make changes to make more overtime or, you know, to have gold plated bunker gear or anything stupid like that. You're trying, you're trying <laughs> to stop people from dying, either people you work with or people that you serve. Um, and so basically it was such an untenable atmosphere. Um, I mean, there was, a, I'll just kind of paint the picture. I tell, I've told this story a couple of times, but one example, one of the guys I got hired with, passed away about a year into to our service there and i was struck initially by the kind of lack of impact that it appeared to have on this department it's only a four station department so quite a small department uh, i think it was like a hundred hundred people you know uniform personnel something like that um anyway so and it, it was just like you know kind of meh and i'm like jesus christ this is weird so anyway, the day of the funeral, I'd volunteer to take the ladder company down with with, with a crew, put the uh, the big flag up. You've seen over here in the U.S. We hang the American flag between the two aerials. We waited till everyone had gone, the family and everything, before we broke everything down. There was another. His previous agency had sent the vehicle, but just with one guy. So then we helped him break his his stuff down, grab something to eat, and we're heading home. And my lieutenant got a phone call. And they said, oh, you, you took too long at the funeral. You need to call each station and apologize to them. They've been running calls while you're gone. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, that, I think that story just illustrates the lack of brotherhood and sisterhood in that particular place. So between all those things, I hurt my knee and I'd rehab back to, as you, I mean, you're rightly so I could jump on an engine today and serve a hundred percent fully, but, um, I just kind of came at a crossroads. I was about to go back and I was full of dread and I was like, I don't think I'm going to go back. And this podcast was two years old. And I told my wife, hey, what would you think if I just took my pension, cashed it out, and then paid myself for a year and a half? And that gives us 18 months to see if I can you know, get this going to the point where I can get the sponsorship to pay the bills. And then worst case, I'll just go back to the fire service. I've actually been offered um, to test for a local one here. I mean, asked to, which is pretty unique in itself. So I had a kind of you know safety net. But uh, but that was it. And then when I stepped out, firstly, the weight off my shoulders was incredible. But more importantly, I realized that I could truly advocate for the first responder community now because no one can tell me you can't say that. 
No one yeah. can say, you know, oh, you, you'll be written up if you, whatever. And I don't go around slinging shit, but, you know, and like I said, I refer to my last one as my last one. You don't have to be genius to figure it out, but I'm not trying to, <laughs> you know, constantly bitch about departments, but change has to be made. And when you're wearing, wearing the uniform, you just can't speak, you know, freely. And we need to if we're going to truly address that. So that was kind of the backstory. Identity-wise, um, I struggled a little bit because I volunteered. And then when you volunteer, it, you're not, it's not the same. You feel like a ride along, you know, I feel like, a, you know, that you're there for uh Is there any paid volunteer? I know the, the term volunteer would suggest that the irony in my question, but is there any paid volunteers uh, across the US still? Because we, we still have a lot of, well, I don't think we have, that's an exaggeration. We have a couple of fully volunteer services stations over here, but the vast majority are on call or retained. So they do get a very nominal fee. Still, it runs on morale, to be honest with you. But I thought there's still large portions of America that are completely free, or I'd be wrong in saying that. No, you're right in saying that, and it's crazy. So a lot of them are professional, but there's a lot of leaning on volunteerism still, which I understood a long, long time ago when towns were very remote and you know few and far between. But take you know New York, New Jersey area. They're heavily densely populated suburban cities that are relying on volunteer fire departments. So it's insane, absolutely insane. The complexity of the role as well now and the sheer training demand just does not lend itself to that. I feel you're setting somebody up to fail, you know, because the, in the heart of hearts, the vast majority that I speak to have that desire to do it to the very best of their abilities. But if you're not going to pay them, it, they, they, they're unable to take themselves away from, you know, a, an employment that's going to support the rest of their family to be the best version of themselves. I would struggle to live in that in that torturous sort of in-between world i think yeah absolutely well i'm gonna spin the mic back on you because i realize i've been doing more talking than you so <laughs> it's gonna be it's this constant push and pull I I know, I know. i'll keep spinning you i'll keep spinning you go ahead all right so to the american audience they obviously can tell that you are not from kansas or tennessee so let's start at the very beginning <laughs> tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings uh, so I'm born in the UK, uh, around sort of the Midlands area, so kind of just north of the middle. Um, my family's pretty great. You know, my old man was a uh, Cub Scout leader when he was young, and then uh, he did a few mess about jobs before starting a building firm. And the lessons that he learned as a scout leader, uh, I mean, my mom and dad actually had all the, the scouts lining up outside there. Um, church when they sort of graduated from it and the reason I say that is because so much of my childhood involved my dad you know taking me up top of scaffolding which is uh, you know something that he would do regularly and teaching me to tie lines off he'd take me out into the woods you know we'd be making dens and campfires and improvising and learning how to navigate by the stars and all that sort of stuff um, my mom uh, she kind of came up from nothing. She had a really rough childhood and I'll probably not go into too much of it out of respect for her. But one of her biggest things was always just to be a mom. And as, as, as sad as that sounds, which is probably harsh for me to say that because I see so much in her and I see so much potential in her. And she actually worked her way up through several businesses to become a financial director um, and very successful in what she does. But I see the dichotomy between the lack of belief she has in herself and how that kind of fueled my dad to be that provider to be the one that the driver and and you know he he had a, a bunch of uh, explorations into different properties and stuff like that alongside his building firm um and so much of that character 
um, had a massive influence in me as a child. Um, I have a sister. She, um, she again was kind of the complete opposite of me. She's two years older than me, but she'll always refer to me as her older brother. Um, predominantly because I was always so goddamn serious. I was always just like relentlessly competitive. And also at a very young age, I started to take on um, physical aspects and physical challenges that uh, were all self in, sort of self-imposed, but um, sent me down a rabbit hole of becoming a very large human being for a period of time, which came with its own uh, regrets and challenges I'm sure we'll go into. Um, but she went down the academic route. She's a primary school teacher now. Um, she's fantastic at what she does. I see the way she interacts with my children. And she has taught me so many things in terms of, you know, active listening and empathy and, and flexing your style. And I think she's great. She really inspires me. Um, as a kid, I was, uh, it's a very competitive, um, quite, I always say I'm sociable, but not social. What I mean by that is you put me in a group, I'll talk to absolutely anybody. I'm happy to engage in anything. I'll stand on a stage and I do a lot of that talking and speaking and all that sort of stuff. But I never felt the need to seek out groups. You know, I used to be so happy. I'd spend a whole day by myself running around fields or swimming rivers and creating these ridiculous explorations for me to have as a child. And I'm sure some of that was born out of the, the scouting aspect of it. Um, and then, yeah, and then headed into school. Depends how far you want me to go with it. Well, I do. I want to move forward from there. But that being said, um, not many people, you know, were of the previous generation that came from the scouting world. And I do have someone else. I forget who it is, but someone in America who that was actually their early background as well. Did he ever comment on, and this is a recurring theme, you look at basically every bad thing in the world. It's a few shit bags wasting, you know, ruining it for everyone else. When sadly people think of Cubs and Scouts, you know, the pedophilia also pops in because we've all heard the horror stories. So with him being so embedded in such a, you know, an amazing organization that has so many benefits, does he ever discuss on, you know, some of those cases and what that did to scouting? Um, I mean, he never really had any experiences with that aspect of it. He placed me around environments where there was a lot of physicality involved and we did a lot of community work with uh, with Cubs and Scouts and stuff like that. I took a lot of the benefits from that with my dad, privately, in all, in all honesty. He, because he was so busy, when we weren't doing things on the weekends and stuff like that, I pretty much would never see him. So a lot of that aspect of it came from him injecting me into the local groups. So in into the groups where um, I would learn those skills. And the, the history of scouting, I mean, it, it began, um, it was only like in the 1900s when, when scouting began. But you see so many people, and if you look through presidential campaign, president, the, the history of presidents and stuff like that, so many of them, there's a lot of correlation between the characteristics. I mean, even just the aspect of dib, dib, dib. You know, it's always do your best, do your best, do your best. As simplistic as it sounds, but, you know, some of the the basic things that they would ask you to recite, almost like mantras before mantras became a thing in the, the world of positive mental attitude and all that sort of stuff. It was just, you know, I promised to do my best, you know, do a good deed every day. Um, and that led me to that um, curiosity of finding things and tasks that I could do for people where there would be no possibility of return. Because I think that's the true definition of a, of a selfless act is where the other person can never repay it. There's no expectation of it. Um, and I think that's quite a rare thing these days because we're very conscious of the investment of our time and, and where that's valued. And yeah, there's some of the things that 
that I got most from that. And I think it kind of led me into now in the work that I do with UK International Search and Rescue. That was, that kind of got me back into, into those days. And I was so happy to find that within the UK Fire and Rescue Service because it's such a unique set of people with, you know, associated moral compass and values. And, and as you've alluded to, and I hear you speak about on the podcast, we like to think that as a general, um, finger in the air that most people in the emergency services have that very same moral compass but that thing you know compasses can be affected by magnetic pulls and all sorts depending on what environment you place them in and some people can get lost um so i find that international search and rescue is like a group within a group and that's not come from an elitist perspective but the ideas of what they do every time you go on a deployment with people like that every every your corner you turn, every tent you open, somebody is willing to help. Somebody, there's no, you know, there's no one sighing. There's nobody groaning. There's nobody, ah, oh, fucking really, can't we just go back? You know, if it's, we've got to get all this kit up that hill or we're going to head over to the next village to, you know, carry out um, a recce on the next rescues that we're going to carry out tomorrow. Someone's just dropped kit off and it's five miles down the hill. We've got to go get it. People love that. Um, and when I first did the arduous conditions course, you do like a four day course um, for, for, uh, international search and rescue. And it's, it's titled as an arduous conditions course. And much of it is based around scouting meets military meets rain, just rain and rain and fucking rain. And, uh, is basically designed just to beat you down, you know, to, to break you down to your very base and see what lies beneath all of those layers of bravado. Because I've, I have found through that that so many people in the emergency services can be great for 12 hours. You know, they're so conditioned to that expectation of the finish. But when you, there's no finish in sight or when it's always a false finish and when you're not sure when it's going to end, that's what that really brings into you. And within that, you carry logs around hills and you do different levels of navigation. A lot of this is either doing the Lake District in the UK, which if anybody takes a look at it, if you can find a picture where it ain't raining, then, you know, it's midnight swims across desolate lakes. And it's, you know, finding people in loads of bracken and woodland and then doing open area dog searches and then finding that person having to carry them another six miles and then get in a different direction. And all of that, you know, trying to challenge people's decision-making when they're that, when they're, they're absolute most tired um that's what kind of echoed back to my time in the scouting and stuff like that because and also it makes you feel more human you know some of the stuff we were talking about in our early conversation those aspects of getting down to the base level human instincts when you take away you know you look at that hierarchy of needs when you take away all of the bullshit that sits near the top when you just get back to those basic needs if you're focused on the basic needs you don't worry so much about all of the BS that causes so much mental anxiety. We're like we said earlier, we're we're problem solvers. But if you're focused on the problems of how to sleep and how to feed and where your next meal is coming from, you don't get the opportunity to focus on things that are outside of your control that cause so much of that mental frustration. And now that we've solved so many of those base level needs, I see that as some of the stuff that perpetuates this mental fog that I see so many people sitting. And you see that in the emergency services when when it gets quiet people don't have those same drivers. You know, there's nothing worse than a crew that hasn't had a call in a couple of sets or a couple of tours. They get antsy. They start to find problems to solve. And that's a dangerous place to be sometimes. 
Yeah, you see that over here. Um, you know, we do 24 hour shifts, so it's a little bit longer. And then a lot of agencies sadly get mandatory. So you're told to stay another 24, um, which then that gets a little brutal. My, my place in Anaheim, when I worked there, I think the longest we did was a 96. That is like borderline psychosis by that point. And I've heard they've, they've, <laughs> they've made it even longer now where you can be almost double that. And I don't know if it's for the wildland fires or what, but that's just insanity. Mm. But I we did. have 24 hour shifts over here now. We, we can do a maximum of a four day stretch on our 24 hour shifts. But in certain aspects, the UK Fire and Rescue Service has been deemed illegal, um, against uh, work time regulations. But you can put in local agreements with the unions to opt out of that. And that's a big thing that's going on over here at the minute with a lot of firefighters actually want to do it because a lot of them will live out of county. Some will live out of country. And I know firefighters that live in Ireland and Scotland and work in various areas in the UK and that will allow them to travel in, do four days, and then they get like 12 days off. So they prefer that pattern. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what happens with it. At the minute, a lot of services have been told to stop doing it. But I appreciate there's a spectrum within that as well. And like, as you allude to, there can be a, you go past the point of diminishing reward. Do you know what I mean? Where the cost is way outside of the benefit. Yeah. Well, you also think ultimately, as you said, this is a selfless profession and we're serving. If your time off convenience is more important than your ability to actually do your job at the highest level that's where that you know discussion needs to happen i mean 24s in a station where you have somewhere that you can you know sleep take a nap between calls because we get hammered here we do the fire and the ems together um it's brutal but um you know if you start coupling them together i mean again from the sleep medicine side the acute effects of sleep deprivation just 24 hours without sleep and the, they talk about this a lot it's the same as basically having a blood alcohol level above what you'd be you know stop for but that's for someone who's well slept 24 hours so you take you know that chronic use already 2448 i mean you truly are starting to head towards the psychosis that they're trying to create in special force selection by not sleeping mm. for several days that's our normal so so yeah i mean i think that's the problem is that we have this our ability to see how tired we are is diminished because of how tired we are so oh, yeah. your self-awareness diminishes dramatically yeah 100 percent. i would love to see us adopt a bit more of that but i don't they always say be careful what you wish for because in the UK, we, you know, we need to start making some serious decisions about the fire and rescue service. And we're running off the back of our successes in the fact that we've diminished or we've rapidly decreased the requirement for fire and rescue services to put out fires because we've put so much um, effort into construction and into the way that people live in their homes. And I'm sure that that will have a step back at some point as people become less responsible and less accountable for the way that they're running their lives. But at the minute we see a massive decrease from the last 10 years in the number of fires that people attend. So we look for other things that we can offer to the community to ensure they get value for money from the fire service. And I would love to see us adopt. I say my brother-in-law is a paramedic. I do a lot of ride-alongs with them. I'm a, I'm a trauma trainer in the services that I work for. And I would love to see us adopt that because I think ultimately people that join the emergency services want to go and be that answer. They want to go and help people in their hour of need. So I would rather see us doing that than you know, doing other, you know, menial tasks for our community that perhaps don't, um, you know, tickle your pickle in terms of how you can actually add value to community. But w I'd love to see us adopt that. But I appreciate that it, it once you've opened those floodgates, there's no closing them. So tell me what your scope of practice is right now as far as EMS or, or first aid ability for a British firefighter. 
So for a British firefighter, um, we get trained up to um, predominantly, obviously you've got all your CPI, you've got all your, your main trauma. We do um, intubation and we do um, all the basic C-spine immobilization, all that sort of stuff. But we don't do any search we don't do any um, administration of drugs in certain services. We do do things like Entonox and things like that for mild pain relief. But that really is the extent of what we do. But the irony being, and a lot of people are saying that, you know, people that don't want to see us adopt more of the EMS, more of that um, trauma aspect. Well, half the time, because the NHS is so busy, I mean, I was, you know, running calls a few weeks ago and we had a road traffic collision and uh, we had a woman. Um, she was conscious, but she, she had several large bleeds, nothing hemorrhaging. But we asked for, um, you know, paramedics, we asked for ambulance to attend. And because she wasn't hemorrhaging, because she was conscious and breathing, nine hours, nine hours is the earliest they can be with us because it's not, it's not, you know, it's not a red one. It's not anything like that. So we're going to do it anyway. As much as people say they don't want to do it, when a call comes in, the fire service are going to be the first there most of the time. So we're already doing it. I would just like to see it formalized in a better way so that people are being financially remunerated. People are being, firefighters are being rewarded for what they're already doing. But I see that people are worried about that because they don't want to open the floodgates and us to be going to every single call that, that the ambulance can't make it to. But I mean, like paramedics, the average um, career span is like five years in the UK now. Oh, people really? On, yeah, man, people are not staying in that in that because they are just so overworked. And I think they're struggling a lot with things like, I mean, you spoke about general fatigue, but empathetic fatigue. How did how did you find things like that in your career? Because you said you had, obviously still have children and a family and stuff like that, but you started to see yourself. And I remember reading in the book how they identified that you were just becoming more and more detached. They could see you almost shrinking and hollowing in your demeanor and who you were. How did you manage to maintain conversations with people about day-to-day -day things when you were so overworked and that, that, that empathetic muscle just becomes fatigued to the point where you can't engage in mediocrity? It, it must be hard to do, and I know it's something I've struggled with. It was really hard for me because, I mean, I genuinely do consider myself a kind person at the core when I'm actually well-rested and, you know, got my stress under control <laughs> yeah. and all these things that Come turn us into together. giant dicks. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it does this, the, the wear and tear, you know, the organizational stress, the, the call after cause, or as, you know, I know you can relate to this too, the bullshit calls, you know, the things that people call 9994 or 911 that they have no business sending us to in the first place, you know, and it's the frequent flyers. We call them over and over again. You know, the, the people you're working with who are horrendous at their job. I mean, all these things that, that compound. Um, but I think I was able to hold on to it. But it was, it was hard. I mean, firstly, I would use every single sick day and holiday I could. I was, you know, there was guys really? that, you know, would, would have medals for all the stuff they got saved up. I was the other end of the spectrum. I'm like, as soon as it accumulates, I'm taking it. Because to me, I, I could identify that we needed rest. And like you said, when you compare us where you guys and the ambulance combined into one, we're running, you know, I mean, tens of calls per 24 hour shift sometimes. It's, it's crazy. Um, but what I did witness with my own eyes was other people that hadn't, you know, some people that had just stayed at the busiest rescue, you know, over and over and over again. And it was a badge of honor for them. But I watched them just screaming at patients, screaming at people, you know, and just losing their shit. So that compassion fatigue you see in fire and police and EMS and, and you know, the medical community, 
And that is a big red warning sign for us that we need to either transition to a slower station for a while, you know, take some extra, you know, holiday time, whatever it is. But that's just part and parcel with the job. If we're going to work our people into the ground, I'm sure if you looked at um, that element in, you know, late 2021 with all these frontline responders being worked, you know, whilst everyone clapped for them, because I'm sure that really helped your family's finances and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) relationships, Um, you know, you're going to see that because that's just what happens. And you listen to, again, to the sleep medicine world, it is a, you know, a side effect of, of burnout, of being overworked. So to me, it was just a case of owning all the things that I can, you know, the nutrition and exercise and taking holidays and all that, but also whether it was, you know, paid time off, unpaid time, whatever, I'm going to hit pause and I'm going to take some extra time off to to spend a few more days in my bed. But that's a hard thing to to do. And I think that the most important barometer that we have is our family. You know, they're the ones that we need to ask. You tell me, how am I doing? Well, you're kind of a dick at the moment. Okay, um, it's probably time for me to, you know, to take a few extra ones. But that's why I fight so hard for the working environment because the men and women that we send out on people's worst day to cut our child out of a car or to climb a ladder and pull them out of a bedroom window, you know, whatever it is that we're doing, we should be given a work week that gives us more rest and recovery. But you compare us to the average civilian profession, we get a lot less. And that is absolute insanity. Do you not feel times, though, there are people that, and I say this as a weakness, I think you've got such great self-awareness in that. And it's something I'm still trying to develop because I feel more comfortable in chaos. I struggle in environments where I don't have a purpose, where I don't, or I struggle to identify that purpose. Like use the, use the example of your family and things there. I always say with my children that they want quality time with me, not that, you know, it's the quality of it, not the quantity of it. You know, I know hear people say, oh, I spend every evening with my kids. And I'm like, it's bullshit. You're fucking sitting on the sofa watching the telly when your fucking kids upstairs on Netflix or some shit you know you're not spending quality time with them and I'm sure that's my own justification I, I've never written a parenting book and I don't envisage I will I don't I don't know if anybody knows how to do it properly I certainly don't but it's like my daughter I'm not as interested as I think I am my daughter wants an hour of my time she wants maybe a couple of hours of my time you know we go and walk the dog around the park we play a game we do something like that and then she's got her own shit she wants to go and do other things and I know that I operate best in environments that require something of me and I know that alludes to something about my addictions and, and the fact that I struggle not having or not feeling like I'm I'm adding value to something or I'm not feeling like I'm engaged or I'm not feeling like I'm developed but I would always rather have that. I feel like, and it's again, we, we justify these things to ourselves. And I'm sure we're all the best salesmen in our own head because I've justified myself overworking and I justify myself doing that side of it and continually to throw myself back in the river. Do you know what I mean? You climb out of it, you thrash through the rapids. And as soon as you get out, you go, oh, I'm going to get back in. And someone's like, dude, this shit is not sustainable. But within there, it gives you purpose. How do you answer that? Because you still work hard now. I mean, dude, the, the output you have with the podcast is colossal. So you still do clearly have that massive work ethic, but you've managed to get a hold of that self-awareness. And I don't think I'm there yet. So two things. Firstly, I think there's a little voice in all of us because we went in, like I say, I always talk about this, that there's the yin and the yang. And it was that kind, soft, compassionate side that made us become a firefighter, a cop, a doctor, you know, whatever it was. But then when you're on on the job, when you make an entry to, you know, a structure or, you know, again, you're sifting through the wreckage to try and find someone, 
there's no time for poetry and stroking kittens. You've got to actually, you know, get in the yeah. flow state and get it done. That takes some courage and some physical ability. Um, but the big mistake that a lot of us make is we start identifying just in that, that hard part. Now, all of a sudden, you think you're a Terminator. And I think there's that pull, this almost like facade that one day people are going to look back and you know, you're, you're telling yourself story. One day people are going to talk about you as one of the world's best firefighters and so you know to do that to earn that title you've got to go to every call i mean i remember just being angry missing any structure fire that another shift got oh, yeah. you know what yeah. i mean because you want to be there and help but that ego starts getting in the way now in, in that kindness and compassion is at the core but it's like wait a second you know i wanted to be on that call i wanted to be you know making those rescues and it comes from a good place and a bad place at the same time so what was kind of finishing off the whole transition story what made it bearable why i stopped volunteering is i realized that same path of kindness and compassion that sent me into the fire service i carried on out it's just the uniform doesn't look cool and i'm not in a calendar <laughs> you know and then and a stripper showing up as a podcaster wouldn't get much money <laughs> so you let, know. Me, let me articulate my way through this performance exactly no <laughs> tell me about your childhood um <laughs> so so yeah so it was the ego again it's how i look versus what i'm actually doing so i think that was a big thing was giving yourself grace giving yourself you know the space like telling yourself you've done enough and i don't mean that like being lazy and and you know just not putting in any effort but as you said with your daughter and same with my son when i'm with him i'm work really hard to try and be present i'm not anywhere near perfect but that's my goal too I'm going to put everything away and, and, you know, spend this time with him. But then the reality is, like, I work at home. He's off at sc from school at the moment. I feel guilty sometimes, but I've got work to do as well. And i got to tell him, this is when I can't be with you. Um, and I think it's and the also same it's with the, the example that you set for him. Do you know what I mean? I always say people, children learn with their eyes, not just their ears. You know, are you that hypocrite? Are you the person saying, do your best, try your hardest, you know, be kind. have a great work ethic, be kind. The, the child has every right to turn around to you and say, well, Daddy, are you trying your hardest? Are you doing your best? You know, you're telling me to stay away from drugs. Are you doing this? You know, what? Why are you? Why are you eating those things? I stand at the the school gates sometimes, and I hear parents say that, and this is try hard. You know, and I think, fuck, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Are you? When you, and no one will know. You can bullshit me. You can bullshit everybody. But when you go to bed at night and you curl up and you close your eyes, you will know. You will know. Did I give it everything today? And most of the time for most people, and including myself sometimes, I'm no better, you know, the answer is no. But you got to be careful who you compare yourself with it, though, because if you I see a lot of people, I, I was talking to someone the other day, um, you know, with with the Jocko thing, you know, you get these firefighters mm -hmm. that are like, I was up at 4.30. I dude, you haven't slept for two days. You're an idiot. You need to be up at 10.30. I hate to tell you. And then with David, you know, great. I mean, he's ultra marathon and, you know, was a... Uh, Extremely David's fucked as well, though. He is fucked. If you actually get get down into it, he has got some serious adrenal problems. He's got some serious problems with his legs. Uh, you're you're comparing the highlight reel to your backstage. That's half the problem, and that's not to diminish him. You know, the, he is an incredible individual, but to him to have that longevity, and he's had to calibrate, and we all will. Mm -hmm. But he's David Goggins, and the rest of us aren't David <laughs> Goggins, or Jocko, or Tim Kennedy, or you know whoever. And so you have to find your own path. But yeah, so. So we can always look and think we could do more, but I think that's a dangerous thing too. Where's that balance? And you know that work-life balance phrase is kind of worn out now, but but it's true. Like be present in your work, 
and then be present you know not a not at your work what are you going to do next you get you know you break your freaking back tomorrow now in your wheelchair you can never be a firefighter again what are you going to do outside of this or are you hanging on to this and every day post-retirement you're reminding everyone that used to be a firefighter that's not a healthy way to be that was one of the aspects for me as I as I was moving through playing different sport as a kid. You know, I, I played academy for basketball and then I ran for the county and I played international field hockey and then roll hockey, then ice hockey and team GB and all that sort of stuff. And that's when we first started getting into physical training and really starting to understand how you could take control of your body and you could build it. And that to me would just empowered me. You know, I was one of the pumping iron kids. I was the one that saw all of that and I saw the birth of strongman and, you know, all all those greats and Jeff Capes from the UK, you know, some of the big names there. I started to fall in love with that. And again, this aspect of masculinity is something I want to ask you because I had this idea first from, from the scouting world of people that would be the first one over the hill, the first one to explore outside the cave, you know, the, the first one standing at the front holding the map and navigating that seemed to have all the answers and could just, you know, find a solution to any issue. I wanted that and I wanted to believe that I could, you know, embody those aspects of masculinity. And so often when we think of those images of people, it stands behind this physical prowess as well. So I thought that's a box I've got to tick. So down I went in the rabbit hole of building myself physically. And what started out as, you know, some fairly intense physical training just kind of changed gears as I went down the rabbit hole of strongman because I quickly got introduced to the world of performance enhancing drugs. And I didn't have the mental maturity to differentiate between them in terms of, okay, so I understand all of the macronutrients. So these are types of a chemical, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. So I have a bit more of this and a bit more of that. So I need a bit more. And anything that I thought I could get me a marginal gain. And when I started competing at 16, 17, people identified me as having a great deal of strength, you know, you know, competing against people in their 30s and just, just wiping the floor with them. That they said, well, if you want to change gears, you need to do this. And that was my first introduction to the world of, of steroids and, and, and anabolic use. And I remember sitting, you know, in somebody's uh, in somebody's house, who had prepped my first injections and had told me, "This is this this is what you need. This is nandrolone decanate." You know, Deca. One of the kids back then. That was that was one of the first sort of things I got involved with. Deca, and it was sustenance, and then it was oh god, all kinds of stuff. But drawing that needle out in there pulling your shorts up sticking it in the side of your thigh seeing a bubble go inside which you weren't quite sure if that was supposed to happen you have this idea that they flick the needle and get rid of the stuff and you don't know what it is and it looks like olive oil and that's when i went down that rabbit hole but it i quickly began to get the rewards of i could build this physical shield i could build this shield that was impenetrable and it was that was going to be the platform I could build the rest of these things I needed because that was the first box to tick everyone I saw and I aspired to you know now we have the Jockos of the world but then when we had the Sylvester Stallones we had the Arnies we had you know all the firefighters that I saw just because they were older they were also physical Adonises, you know, and they probably weren't, you know, the lens of history has a, a strange way. We look through rose tinted glasses as we look back on those people and they weren't flawless. You know, they were, they had their own struggles and challenges, but I began to build this was going to be my foundation. And it took me, you know, I took, I took performance enhancing drugs for about what it had been. I started when I was 18 and stopped when I was 25. So that would have been seven years. And I went from 14 stone, 
to just over 25 stone um, when I got to my heaviest. And that was when I was 25. That was always the thing. I always just say to people, yeah, I've got, I've gained a stone of weight for every age that I was. And I was, I fell in love with the discipline of it because whilst the performance enhancing side of it was dangerous, I loved high level sport because of the disciplines it teaches you. And I appreciate you can go too far. You can over, over flex that muscle and the spectrum is somewhere in the middle. But for me, I still would love to see more people engage in sporting disciplines because it teaches you discipline. It teaches you timing. It teaches you, you know, those aspects that you don't get from a lot of other things. And that for me was getting up every two hours and eating food. And when people say, oh, so like what, get up and it's 5 a.m. and then it lasts me all sort of, you know, six or seven. I'm like, no, every two hours. You know, as in you get up every two hours, two hours through the night and you eat, you know, a couple of liters of water and just fighting back that gag reflex. And that would always be my line, like you said, about watching the, the jockos and people is to try and test people's commitment by setting fire to yourself, which sounded so ridiculous, but it would be, oh, Pete, I'd love to start doing some training with you. I'd say, okay, well, tomorrow we'll do our, we'll do our session together. We'll, we'll do it at four. And they're like, yeah, that's cool because I finished work kind of just before four o'clock. And I'm like, no, 4 a.m. And I'm like, fucking why? why? Why would I do that? Because that to me was, it has to be then. You know, and then I'd go back and do it again in the evening and then I'd do a bit of cardio in the afternoon. And I was literally setting myself on fire. They say burning the candle at both ends. I'd put a flamethrower to that bitch. You know, there was no, there was no in between and it was not sustainable. You know, maybe three or four years in, I started picking up injuries so quick, prolapsed discs in my back, varicose vein surgery on both my legs. I had, um, cortisone injections in my shoulder. I tore my rotator cuff. Um, I tore my entire right pec off um, when I was about 23. And even now, looking back, I just can't understand why I kept going. Because you said about identity with the fire service. To me, back then, I'd, I'd kicked education to the curb. You know, I'd thrown university into the long grass. There was no going back for me. I was built 90% of who I was, was this big, strong person. That was who my identity was. So if I wasn't that, then who was I? I didn't have to challenge myself educationally. I didn't have to rebuild the relationships with my parents. My parents threw me out. They found needles in my bedroom when I was 18 and they couldn't understand it. You know, they didn't, didn't know why I'd done that. If we played word association, James, and I said needles, you'd say heroin. drug addict, yeah. heroin, you know, whatever it might be. They didn't understand. And again, I, I justified it to myself. No, I'm not a drug addict. Of course I'm not. I don't take coke. I don't take heroin. I don't take that. I do this thing that is for my performance. You're a drug addict. You know, and I, and I don't mean to diminish the challenges that heroin addicts face and alcoholics face and anything like that, but it is a form of addiction. And it led me through such a self-destructive path. And I think so many people just keep heading down that and down that and down that. I feel so lucky to be able to speak for it from the other side because so many people don't speak about um, certainly things like steroids because it's prolific. It's fucking everywhere now, dude. It's absolutely everywhere. And now we twist it and try and reframe it and call it replacement hormone replacement therapy man you're juicing <laughs> you're just mm -hmm. juicing well let me ask um, you this a sec because i want to just jump in if you don't mind go you go. talked about building a shield that certainly you know is, is a very similar thing i had a female guest on the show nicole who um she was a fashion art student and then she was in manhattan when 9 11 happened and the trauma through the civilian's eyes she wasn't even in the building but just you know thinking that you're being attacked and you know literally walking out of manhattan and you know the aftermath and all that stuff but 
her mental health journey sent her to not only bodybuild herself and cover herself in tattoos, but also every partner she had was some roid-using meathead because, as she put it, I felt you know, subconsciously like I needed a bodyguard. And it's the same thing when you say the shield for a lot of you know men that find themselves doing the same thing themselves, that that broken child, and I mean that in a positive way, you know, whatever happened to that that young man is kind of wrapped around a layer of muscle, tattoos, whatever. So when you look back now at your early years, were there elements of trauma that you think contributed to that psychology? Yeah, when I was um when I first got into training with weights before the days of performance enhancement and stuff like that, I got into door supervision, so bouncing and all that sort of stuff, as people would know it is in the States, I'm sure. And I was attacked a number of times. Um I was glassed in a couple of nightclubs. Um I was involved in a shooting. Um and it petrified me. It really scared me. And I wanted to build something that I thought, because back then the people weren't carrying knives and stuff as much like that. People were glassing people and stuff like that. And as I finished was when people started carrying weapons and stuff in the UK. And now it's petrifying to see how many weapons are on the streets. I would never, I hated every second of it because I never drank as well. I was never into alcohol. This is the irony. I never did any other drugs. I just did the things that I could justify to myself as physical performance enhancers. And that was what was going to build the shield around me. I wanted to know that when I was thrown in those situations, I was superhuman. I was I was a superhero. I could protect myself. I could protect anyone else I needed around me. But that was I was such BS because I only went further down a self-destructive route. You know they say that that you know the poison damages the vessel more than it damages anybody else. And when you've got those toxic thoughts, those toxic justifications, those toxic analogies, the longer you hold on to them, the more they just burn you from the inside out and you know, the da- you said earlier, and I'm going to say it with respect now, you say, hey, you know, we're kind of like the same age. How old do you think I am? Um, well, that's probably rude because I'm 48. So, <laughs> but I think hey. my, I feel like I'm a lot younger. So I, I guess you're probably actually late 30s. So I'm 33. Okay. Do you know what I mean? And most people, most people put me in my 40s. Most people do that because I've always spent my time around older people. And also the things that I put my body through means that parts of me have aged you know i i grew up too quick in those aspects i tried to place myself around people that would force me to grow physically mentally and i i didn't do any of the lads holidays you know i didn't do any of that social aspect because i was so goddamn serious about building this thing i just shut myself off from the world to do that and yet it was those experiences of, of feeling vulnerable of feeling attacked um, and this happened in school as well, you know, I was so competitive that I was beating kids four years older than me in school, you know, in sporting activities out on the field and they would come and wait for me outside classrooms. And I remember so many times the the bell going, them sprinting into the classroom to grab me and me climbing out the window, you know, and jumping like two floors down to then get away across the field because nobody likes being embarrassed in front of their crowd. Nobody likes some kid four years younger than them beating them in rugby or beating them, you know, in some fitness challenge in PE, you know, that losing face in front of the crowd, which only perpetuated my belief of masculinity and only perpetuated that I get rewarded from physical performance. And I know that thread still sits within me now, you know, just in this British firefighter challenge a couple of days ago, won gold in that. That is difficult to do because I fear what, what belief am I reinforcing every time I engage in something like that? So I 
I still live in that dichotomy now. I justify it to myself and say that I have a healthier understanding of it and my relationship with it is healthier. But it's strange and I don't know I don't know as I transition through life how I'll continue to do that and stay healthy with it, I suppose. Now, it's funny because when you said field hockey, I played that too. I played at the college level. Um, and to this day, I still feel like I have to justify that it's a manly sport as well. I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, it's like football, but you carry a big stick the whole time. And it was very physical and did probably get into more fights on the hockey field than I did anywhere else. But um, what was your experience with that sport? There's so many that- things like that. There's so many things like that, man, that are different from the US sport. So we're like, it's like, it's rugby versus American football. Yeah, it's field hockey versus ice. Now, I played ice hockey to an international level, I played roller hockey to an international level for, t- for Team Great Britain. And field hockey, I played all the way up to national. So I would travel to Ireland, to, to Wales, to all these different areas, playing internationally. And for people that don't understand it, go on YouTube it or something like that. This is harder than a baseball. And you, do, you ain't wearing no pads, you ain't wearing no helmet. You know, you're anything like that. And these are hard wooden sticks. It's like an it's like a hockey stick, like an ice hockey stick, but about three times as thick. Yeah. And it doesn't flex like a stick does. Someone is just hitting you with a club and they don't give a fuck. Yeah. I <laughs> so many busted bruises, you know, losing teeth and all that sort of stuff. I mean, if you look at some of the, um, when they have a penalty, penalty flick, as they call it in hockey, you stand in the goal next to the goalie who's fully padded up. You wearing nothing. Yeah. And then that person's going to smack it at you, this thing that's harder, and you don't wear nothing. You're just going to run at it. And it's so surreal. And I see that with the rugby and stuff. You know, when you see the impacts, and I played for, for many years versus American uh, football, and I'm not saying either is better or worse, but dude, rugby wear no pads. You know, we don't wear nothing. We don't wear no helmets. You know, it is just bone on bone. And I, I, I don't know. And again, I'm probably drawn to those sports because of the masculine aspects to them. But I worry the level of damage that we do to ourselves engaging in these things like that. Because I mean, you'll you'll know far better than I will the 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 studies that go on in boxing, in in American football, in the damage that we do psychologically. I worry that they'll catch up with me at some point in the amount of things I've. I'm lucky that I don't engage in any of that now, but those sports were certainly humbling um but again probably perpetuated the fact that i would get rewarded for winning i was the perpetual athlete I, everything to me was a competition well, i played field hockey up to university of north london and uh i'll never forget i had a bad game um and you know so i was i forget what the term was something of the game mug of the game or something and they were like so you have one or two choices you can either wear a dress the rest of the day or you can drink a <laughs> shot from the top shelf of the pub and i was like this is fucking stupid I'm going to join boxing. So I quit that day <laughs> and then jo- join boxing instead. Another another way to get my face smashed in. But at least there, there was none of that fuckery of some of these, you know, other sports teams. Oh, I'm mate, like, I'm here yeah. to play sport. I'm not British here. culture was so fucking stupid yeah, with stuff like that. Ridiculous. Especially rugby teams and stuff like that. It would be, you would all take your shoes off and then the person, you'd like stand in the line, take your shoes off, take one step back, pour two pints into their shoes. And then the race would be drinking the pints out of somebody else's shoe. Um, and then it was a boat race. And I don't want to call it a boat race, but you all stand in line and you race against the other team. And you do so much just stupid shit like that. It was, it wasn't even initiation because everyone was doing it. It was already on the team. And I think there's a balance there that I, I kind of lost out on that social aspect because I say past the age of 17, I didn't drink either because I just saw it as something that would affect my performance, which I think looking back alienated me from that team aspect. And I never discovered that again until I joined the fire service because I obviously went into that solo sport of, of strong man and isolation really. 
So let's talk about your journey into the fire service. Um, you, you, you know, gone through this incredible sporting journey at such a high level. You're a strong man. You were, you know, doing the bodybuilding side as well. When did you find the fire service? And then initially, what was that physical bar set when you walked through the door? When I, so there was, there was two guys that lived on our street who were firefighters. And I would see and hear them racing past in the middle of the night. They were on core firefighters, retained firefighters as it was back then. And I'd hear them racing through in the middle of the night. And as I got a little bit older, I started to ask my old man, you know, who, who are these guys? What are they doing? You know, I hear them going by, the alert is going off and the lights flashing and all this sort of stuff. And seconds later, you'd hear the fire engine blitzing through town. And that analogy of, you know, when everyone's sleeping, someone's on watch, someone's keeping us safe. There is an overarching protector. And I would... I would spend so much time late into the night getting up and eating, like I've already said. So I would see and hear all of these things. The world looks very different in the night and hearing what they would do. And when I started getting my motorbikes, I would I would go and see where they were and see what they were doing. And I would kind of be that kind of anorak kid, you know, that would follow the, down to the fire station and you'd be allowed to go in and help out and open the bay doors. And I just started to see what they were and what it stood for. And this aspect of coming back covered in soot and, you know, washing out hose and four in the morning and seeing what they're doing, hearing the stories, you know, just, just, I'll be like, Oh, then I can do that. Like, I just go and get some bruise on, you know, get some teas. And then I'd come down and I'll be able to sit there and listen and hear people talk about, you know, they've just, you know, we lived in a very rural area. So we went to loads of animal rescues, you know, pulling horses out of rivers and helping people that were trapped in, 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 in waterbound stuff and loads of chimney fires and loads of factory fires and loads of, um, some like agricultural fires, like big combine harvesters and hay bales. And I went to a, a fire once and it was like 4,000 bales of hay on this massive airfield. You could see it from like, you know, 20 miles away. That were, those were the stories that I was hearing and, and just seeing the interaction of team. And I'd missed that for so long. Like I say, I stepped away from sport as I went or I stepped away from team sport as I stepped into the world of strongman. And then when I saw that, I saw this, this masculine, um, area, world of camaraderie of people that were just seemed to be dripping in heroism in the way that they valued what they did and the way that they supported their community and the, and I saw that as an immense calling and something that would that would further allow me to tick the box of having a purpose in life because so much of what I was doing was only serving me it wasn't serving anybody else and I knew deep down there was an area of um, selfishness to that that never sat well with me so when you first joined them, what, what were the physical requirements? And then, you know, walk me through your journey, you know, from that first day onwards. Man, when I was listening to, to your book again the other day, the physical requirements that you guys did, I, it takes me back. I envy it, you know, because our physical requirements were nowhere near that. It really disappointed me. And I remember training for months um, for what I thought it would be. And it was literally just like a bleep test. So if anyone doesn't know a bleep test, it's like 20 meters running back and forth to the sound of a beep on, a, on, a, on an audio track. You'd have to get up to like 8.5 and then you'd have to do a ladder climb to show that you didn't have vertigo. Um, you'd have to do a casualty drag around a course uh, all under time. Um, you do confined space training. So they put you through a rat run. So this is something they would travel around with. It was on the back of a lorry and it was a series of cages. 
uh, and they would sometimes fill it with smoke and they'd put you in full fire kit sometimes with a BA set as well and then effectively try and get through it and I remember everybody lining up to watch me do it because at this point I was probably 21 stone you know six foot five I was a big guy um, and I got even bigger after I joined the job for a while it was like the best kept secret and the fire service was, or in my service was, you've seen that dude, you know the one, the dude that's juiced up to hell. Yeah, that guy. And no one seemed to mention it. No one seemed to say anything to my face, but it was always like the unspoken thing of like, that dude is taking some serious stuff, but everybody lined up to watch me try and get through this rat run. And I damn near destroyed it, you know, because it, it was designed to be changed. So you could change the scenario inside it so that people didn't learn it. But when I got in there, just started barreling through these cages and they were coming off the rig and they were, the whole thing was like falling apart as I was going through it and I made it through and I was like, yeah, is that good? I did it. And they're like, oh, shit. I mean, you made it through. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's some of the rig left. But I remember passing that and I knew that if I could pass it as, as big and heavy as I was. Um, when I then started changing my behaviors, um, I became a much better firefighter. But that was kind of my journey into it. And then training school began, um, which was heat and exhaustion training. So you would march around these steel boxes with two lit fires in the room. And you would, it was almost like, I think they called it the barrel roulette or something like that. There'd be like 30 barrels. Um, and they would be filled, some full of water, some empty. So the ones that were full would be like 25 kilos each. So you know, 70 plus pounds of weight in each hand. And you would pick two barrels up and then you'd step over benches and walk around this room continually as the heat got progressively hotter. And effectively, there was no passing this test. It was just as similar to when you were saying about your training, there's no end to it. It's about how far can you go? And they were testing moral, moral character. They were testing those kind of intangibles just to see how far you could go and they would ask you questions every sort of loop round you know who was the prime minister where did you grow up you know just mathematical calculations and stuff like that to see your level of disorientation and so you eventually drop to your knees and, and step out and do radio calling um so that was kind of my journey into it um the first few days were you know running hose and knots and lines and and that for me was just like a gift because knots and lines i'd done sailing in the past i was a sailing instructor and then all of the scout training that was just me down to a T, you know, I was straight in there helping other people really, you know, stepping, stepping over to other recruits and, and helping them develop those skills. Um, yeah, from there I, I went on and did, did the on-call re retain side of it. I did that for 10 years before I stopped. Um, obviously joined the whole time process during that. Um, but I love that community aspect to it. I always love serving on, on the trucks with the team that worked in the town that I lived in because people knew you as being a firefighter as well, they knew that you were a source of good, they knew you were a source of help and you would see people at the shop and they would ask you to help out with things and you would go to local schools and it stood for more. Um, and it was it was kind of a, a muscle, a mental muscle that I'd really neglected, that I'd really, I'd just become weak because I'd never fed it. I'd been doing so much selfish stuff and I couldn't see a purpose in anything that I was doing. I had some terrible jobs before that. Um, things that gave me no fulfillment and something like this was so surreal when I got into it and like the serial addict <laughs> I just became addicted to it so as you progressed through your career did you start seeing mental and or physical issues in the men and women that you were serving among yeah I mean even 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 recently um last week in fact uh, uh 
firefighter at one of my, my stations actually took his life. Um, a year younger than me. Um, and I, I, I saw the decline of, of various people. I saw, I saw so much more self harm done sometimes after they left the career, but more so when they finished their shifts, you know, they would self prescribe, they would self administer alcohol and things like that. Um, we even had a couple of instances of people turning in under the influence of alcohol and, and having to deal with that as a manager when I'd moved into a managerial role it was difficult because I knew they were trying to solve a problem. They were, they wanted to continue doing what they were doing, but they, they were struggling. They were struggling to find the answers. And this was really in the UK as we were starting to learn more about mental health and learning more about trauma. And I think there's a, there's a difference between what the lessons we tried to learn from the military. So some of our trim and stuff like that. So that's trauma risk incident management came from the military. But really in the military, you live, and again, this is only from, from operators that I've spoke to, and perhaps you can shine some more light on it. You live within that world all the time. So if you're on a deployment in a different country or you know in a war zone, it's more difficult because you can't escape it, but equally you don't change gears. So you are there and you're dealt with, and then when you come back, you get a package that's either good or bad. But with a firefighter, you you change gears every day because you return back to your family or you return like in the retained and the on-call in the volunteer world. They can be cutting bodies out of a car at two in the morning and then rock up to their job. You know, I worked in a warehouse for a period of time. You're rocking up there at seven in the morning and nobody knows what you've just been through. Nobody sees that and they say, right, we've got these orders that need to go out today or you're unpacking this or you're cleaning that. And, and that was such a jarring experience for me. And I saw the effect that ha had on people around me and how they tried to find solutions to it. To me, my solution was always fitness. It was always throwing myself further into that rabbit hole, which, you know, came, came to a head when I eventually, through, through my other employment, came across some incredible coaches and incredible mentors that acted as, um, effectively a guide. You know, I, I'd wandered into the fog and was lost and I knew that what I was doing wasn't working and the, the remedies I tried to use as a solution to this mental addiction weren't working. And I also knew that I couldn't stop being an addict because people say, you know, addiction is bad. But it's only because we associate it with drugs or alcohol. If you were a really good painter, we'd say you're artistic. If you were a business person, we'd say you're driven. But if if you take a drug, we say you're an addict. Whereas addiction to me is like, it's like a secret superpower. It's just an energy source. If you apply it to the right thing, it can be incredibly beneficial. It's like a, it's like a box of fireworks. If we had a box of fireworks in it right now and I set them off, I burn the whole damn house down. But if I take them outside and I funnel them into the sky, well, then it might take us to the moon. Do you know what I'm saying? And if you try to suppress those thoughts from a mental perspective from people that struggle or from people that have an energy that they can't apply to something they're passionate about and i see this in people that have jobs they don't love they're not passionate about if you try to suppress that and i saw it so many times it's like trying to push a, a balloon underwater it's going to emerge it's going to burst out it's going to it's going to hurt you it's going to splash somebody around you you need to find a funnel for it and that funnel for me luckily was changing my interpretation to fitness, changing my perception of masculinity, changing my perception of what my role as a frontline operator was. Otherwise, 
I, I was I was going to go off a cliff. I'd have I'd have destroyed my body. I'd have lost my job, and it got pretty damn close at times as well. So talk to me about that. You know, who were the mentors? What were the principles that they brought, and how did that apply to you? So the individuals I'll use are, are Chris, um, who was a, who was a manager in a business that I was working with at the time, and a lady called Grace, who was uh, given to me as a coach initially to help me through some promotion processes and we started to have conversations around initially what my drive for prog for progress was in the organization that I was part of at the time and and from that she she kind of over delivered and started to talk to me about what my drivers were in general and why I sought these these things in life it was like trying to drink from bottles that just emptied us these things that I kept putting more energy into that weren't helping me and she helped change my perception of the definition of success, the definition of masculinity, because for me it had to be a physical thing and it had to be what you do. They were the things that I needed to understand. And, and like you were alluding to, you saw yourself as a firefighter for so long, that's how you added value. But actually you are so much more than what you do. And I was so much more than just the physical presence that I could bring to something. I was like a cube. You know, there was more sides to me. You know, the, the real challenges for me were well, why don't you go and rebuild the relationship with your family? You know, you've avoided that for so long. Why don't you challenge yourself academically? Because it's something you've always shied away from. You've presented this physical prowess to the world. So you don't need to demonstrate yourself academically. And even when I started the podcast, you know, that was, that was a big thing for me because who I am, um, the physical presence that I do or don't have was irrelevant you know, trying to connect with people on a deeper level. And that comes back to those people helping me rebuild those relationships with my family and understand that I can add so much more value than just physically or even just the job that I do. And that actually gave me a greater understanding for the purpose of a first responder. The, the, the first responder is not, the best of them are not the fittest person on the fire ground all the time. They're not the person that pulls the most babies out of the building. They're the accumulation of a thousand small decisions of doing the next best thing, you know, the next decision, making the best moral, you know, decision from that point onwards. And it's just accumulation of all of those. It's not what you do when everybody's watching. It's not what you do when you turn up to the Instagram because everybody can do that bit well. It's the things you do when no one's watching. You know, back then it was me sitting in a dark room injecting myself with things. That's what I was doing when nobody was looking. I wasn't confronting myself in those decisions and those people gave me that level of self-awareness they held the mirror up to me and there was always a mirror there there's always a mirror for all of us but it becomes so clouded we add layers and filters to it and it's almost like i remember reading the book of a monk and they took him into the back of the library and says this is where you find enlightenment and they took him to this mirror and he didn't even see that it was a mirror because it was so dusty and it was so cobweb filled and he had to remove all of those things that he had put there, all of the bookshelves, all of the, and I had done that. I had placed so many filters. And that's what I think about today. You know, when we look at social media, how many layers we add to life that mean we need to complete all of these things to be the very best version of ourselves. But it is so torturous of our own mind to believe that we need to achieve these things to be the best version of ourselves because the best version of ourselves is just the small decisions we make every day. You won't find it after something. Uh, you won't be happier when you achieve the physique. You won't be happier when you achieve 
the medal once you achieve the promotion if you're if you're not happy now if you're not happy in the decision that you make nothing external is going to bring you that and that's what those people help me understand that those promotions that those physical achievements that deadlifting you know 900 pounds wasn't gonna make me a better version of myself only i had the power to do that there was nothing external that could give that to me yeah, and I, I found that myself as well. And you even listen to, uh, I forget whose podcast it was on. I heard a great in, uh, interview with Johnny Wilkinson a while ago. And he mm. was talking about, you know, the, the incredible level that he got in rugby. And again, finding himself there, standing in that stadium. And then moments after, he's like, ah. Oh. Was it High Performance? High Performance podcast? It might have been. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, Johnny but started his own podcast as well now. He's just started his own. It's called I Am or something like that. It's pretty good. Ah, okay. Brilliant. Yeah. He's someone I want to try and work on, on getting at some point. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you, it, it sounds cliche, but it is the journey, not the destination. Like if you're, you know, as you said, you were disappointed with that physical test at the end. But I bet the drive of that 12 months of training before and this kind of movie you were playing on your mind had so much value to it, you know. So, yes, that one moment was kind of meh, but that set you up. You kind of put the foundation for, you know, the bar that you set yourself in the fire service. And that's just it. The, the one I wrote about in in the book was Hialeah. And that book was that that bar was incredibly high. And that was my very first apartment. And I credit them for, you know, setting setting that bar, which then I carried with me the rest of my career. But, um, you know, conversely, the last place, we just drove around and rode theme park rides. There was no physical test whatsoever, and it was piss poor. I mean, there was a test to to get the job, we call a CPAP, but after that, there was no crucible whatsoever. But, but yeah, so, I mean, that that journey is so, so important because I've, I've I mean, you probably have the same, you know, one day I'm going to get X amount of downloads on the show, which is an important metric because that's people <laughs> that are listening. So it's not even like an ego metric, you know, really like likes or whatever. There is, there is value to it, but you get there and you're like, ah, oh. <laughs> there's no yeah, fulfillment exactly. whatsoever. But these no. conversations are amazing. The messages and interactions I get with people that have been touched by, you know, whoever the guest was, that's where the real reward is. And that's got nothing to do with, you know, fortune or fame or, or any of that stuff. But it's also an aspect of still need it. Still, there is a healthy pursuit in those things. There's an aspect of, like I said before, we are little problem solvers. You know, our mind works in those chemical ways in dopamine. We need to see tangible progress in life. But knowing that there's several different lanes you can choose in that. Think of it like a highway. You know, it hasn't always got to be lane one. It hasn't always got to be physical. You know, you've switched to something now that adds value to people in such a different way that you had done previously, but it's just another lane on the same highway. You know, you can still, they always say seven ways to skin a cat. You know, you haven't got to just perpetually go after that one thing. And I've found that as I've transitioned away from trying to be the the strongest person on the planet you know i can i can have those same successes those same pieces of fulfillment in different areas of my life from challenging myself in my career you know challenging myself to be the best version i can for my daughter those aspects you can still be the serial learner and there is no end to it you know like you said about the the complacency or despondency that can come after an achievement you use johnny wilkinson as an example but you see this with so many athletes you see it with astronauts Astronauts, man, the perpetual sort of spiral that happens after astronauts go and, you know, land on the moon or after they go and have that big achievement. What next? You know, I remember when I first started getting back into the gym, I took like six months off after I'd stopped taking all these drugs and I'd helped transition away from that. And I thought, 
how can I even experience any success in the gym now? Because, you know, I'll go from deadlifting three, three, key, 300 kilos and now I can't lift 200, you know, because that wasn't natural before, but my mind doesn't know the difference because it feels like everything is a failure now because I've been on this false platform before. So I had to reinterpret that level of success, you know, increasing my recovery and, and finding those metrics of success, you know, refining my body's ability for endurance, its plyometric ability, you know, its work, its work rate and how long I could go for. Those are other wins. There are other avenues that you can still get that level of fulfillment from, but you need to want to continue to lean in. If you have that one dimensional view of success, it's never, you can't carry on and you'll always be comparing yourself to somebody else. Like with you with downloads, you see a limitation or you see where you are now. But if I showed you our downloads, they'd be significantly less than yours. And if we compare that to the Joe Rogans of the world, but it's knowing that if you tried to be those things, you'd lose who you authentically are. How have you managed to navigate that as you've seen the podcast develop and as you've, you know, engaged with more high, high level individuals in terms of their popularity? How do you strike that balance of still remaining authentic in what you do and not, you know, if, if Dwayne Johnson wanted to come on the podcast tomorrow for you, would you say yes? You know, and what, what authenticity could you, could you connect with that? Cause I often think there's people I probably wouldn't have on if it wasn't authentic to what I do. And I know that would be a cost in that metric of success. So there has been a very strong core right from the beginning. And, and as you know, the, the guest list is very, very diverse. I mean, there's actors and, you know, um, you know, athletes and freaking boy soldiers from Sierra Leone and, and models and dancers. And, and of course, firefighter police military is, is the core. Yeah. Um, but there is one common denominator. They're all good people. They're all kind, courageous men and women that truly, you know, are trying to make the world better. So. If what we see is true and Dwayne Johnson really is doing great things that, that it appears to, and that's not some big PR push, yeah. then he is more than welcome to be on the podcast. And I would treat him <laughs> the same as any other person. Cause I think one, one thing that I, I guess has come out and probably what we do for a living, like everyone is reduced to a human being. Like I remember, I remember once being called to, um, the station and we went off on a call and right before we did the chief showed up and we're like what the fuck is going on anyway we, <laughs> we show up this this you know crusty old dude is is having a um what was is arrhythmia cardiac arrhythmia i was an emt at the time so i was driving what we call rescue which is an ambulance with all the fire gear on as well um my medic in the back did a great job of converting his arrhythmia and we got there we got him you know, he was stable got him there safely offloaded him to the hospital and then I'm walking out and she goes, you know, that was our mayor, right? And I was like, I don't know if you know me very well. I'm not big on politicians. So yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. But I'm like, it doesn't matter. He, we were just as kind and compassionate with him as anyone else. And it didn't need any extra people to show us, oh, extra, extra careful with this person. This is Boris Johnson or whoever. Um, or less careful, depending on how you look at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's the same. I mean, I'm, I say that jokingly, but it's true. It doesn't matter who you are, what your political, you know, whatever in our profession, you get, you should get the same level of kindness and compassion, regardless of wealth, background, whatever, until you're a dick. And then you get tied to the stretcher and you get given a cocktail of meds and you go to sleepy sleep. But apart from that, <laughs> we, we, you know, there's a certain point where we tolerate. Um, and so I, I see the same when it's with this, this conversation with these podcasts is, I mean, some of the incredible human beings that were on there, like SAS and SEAL Team Six and 
like I said, actors and all kinds of people, but they're just like you and me and they're just good, good people. So I think that's what keeps the authenticity is if you forget labels and titles and pigeonholes and you just have that conversation with the person and you find the commonalities. People are so, you know, this last two years we've seen, they wanted to find that 10% they disagree on and then murder each other over it rather than the mm. middle 80% that they agree on. So you find people in the middle you know, you explore the outer ranges. You might have a lot more in common. It might kind of hit a brick wall and you're like, okay, beautiful. Well, we know where we are. And then there you go. So I think that's really it. It's just, you know, sometimes we forget that we're just people. We're all, you know, shitting our diapers in, in kindergartens around the world, you know, and, and then we all took our little paths. But people have done amazing things. Astronauts, for example, still wear diapers um, or nappies, should yeah. I say. <laughs> but, um, you know, but we're just people and sometimes i think people forget that and that's not arrogance that's i think it's humility you know people want to want to be spoken to as steve or jennifer or whatever what they do as we just talked we were firefighters or you still are and i will always be a firefighter but i've always been james gearing and that's never changed how do you balance the aspect of so many of those communications that we see in the world now, though, living in like a fast food environment where people are having those short, jarring exchanges because we aren't investing the time in having conversations like we're having now? And it's difficult for people because we've also lost the ability to use that muscle. You know, I feel like when, when you and I were kids, people were significantly less educated perhaps, but they had a lot more social skills sometimes. I feel like we've gone through a generation where we've, um, you know, held up that world of self-study and people gone to colleges and universities and things like that, but we've lost the ability sometimes for these more, what were initially not valued as skills, but now will be because we've, lost the ability to communicate very well we've lost the ability to to listen and and demonstrate empathy and be present and and you know use active listening that's why i feel like conversations that we're having now and, and the, the world of podcasting is like the most purest form of social media in that because you can really if you are interested in in learning who james geary is then listen to him for an hour listen to him for two hours you'll get a better understanding but if you listen to a sound bite of who he is then yeah the guy's a fucking dick you know you heard that one thing and you hated it and you made a, a judgment over his entire world you know even like you said you've always been james geary firefighting is one aspect of it podcasting is one aspect of it your son your family taekwondo crossfit you know jujitsu all of these things have played a part of your life but if i only saw you from that perspective i'd have a very new very narrow view of who you are so when did you first start to realize that having these conversations was something that was of value in the world and that people would have an interest in and, and why were you so interested in it because these are difficult conversations to have sometimes people don't like to go this deep it can be very uncomfortable for people how how have you massaged that and how have you seen it to be so valuable i mean the core of it comes from as i've talked about you know going to funerals there's nothing more you know, inspiring is the wrong word, but motivating than sitting in church after church after church with bagpipes playing. And you've heard in the book about my you know dislike for bagpipes has come completely out of funerals. <laughs> but watching American flags being given to, to, you know, grieving widows and firefighter helmets being given to their kids. And, you know, mommy or daddy is in, in that coffin now, you know. And so to me... When I started listening, you know, to certain guests that Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, the Squad Room, Barbell Shrugged had on the show, and I'm like, why are we not hearing these people in our community? This would actually save lives. This would 
you know, move people away from pain and misery and back into thriving again. And that was a driving force. And then, you know, I'm, I'm just a conduit, as they say, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a wire between an amazing human and the person listening. So the more I interview, the more I start as a, as a perpetual student, start learning and learning and learning and growing and growing and growing and therefore being able to ask more interesting questions because I've, you know, now sit here with 650 interviews under my belt. Then you can start putting things back to the person. They go, Oh, I never thought of that. And then, you know, then you just expanding this ball. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's so glaring, obviously, but that the, you know, the TikTok generation thing is just maddening. I mean, I'm not even talking about, you know, the, the awful dances and all that stuff, but even just, just the short form information. But, Firstly, when I reached out to the guests, I assumed that nine out of 10 were going to just ignore my email and pretty much 10 out of 10 said yes. So that was the first thing like, holy shit, these, these guests want to come on the show and talk to a, a random firefighter. But then just watching the metrics and it's been super slow. It's been six years and one became two and two became four. And, you know, it's an exponential growth, but it, it tapers for a long time and then goes again and tapers. But now as I sit here, almost 4 million people have hit play. So regardless of how many likes and shares and all that shit people have on social media, and I'll, you know, I post, I use social media as it was originally designed, which is to promote, you know, the podcast, because that's the only way that you and I have to disseminate that information to other people. But word of mouth is the strongest thing. And those numbers, you know, we talk about metrics, those metrics speak volumes. And the, the messages I get some of these uncomfortable conversations, some of these incredible men and women that have been so courageous and told horrific stories, you know, whether they were adults or a lot of times when they were younger, you know, that might not be a conversation that anyone will have in an office or in a police station or on a, on a barracks somewhere. But that person can put their headphones on or be driving alone in their car and plunk themselves right in, you know, one of my conversations, your conversation with Ivan, whoever it is. And be like, holy shit, this is exactly what happened to me. I'm not alone. I'm not a pussy. You know, but everything everyone's ever told me was wrong. And the more of those you hear, and I try and, tr I mean, I look at the podcast almost like a court case for mental, mental and physical wellness. And every episode is another piece of evidence that we're bringing in to smash the facade. Um, and so it does, whether it's the prohibition of drugs and the absolute fucking shit show that's been and all the gang violence and, you know, just everything, it's just the homelessness and the, the prostitution and everything that that's caused to, you know, the facade of masculinity that we touched on to the obesity epidemic that was completely suppressed during COVID. I mean, you name it, all these things that the the people that have the attention, the fucking news agencies, you know, that could just disseminate this incredible information and choose not to because they'd rather sell advertising space on their tv show then this podcast of this excuse me podcasts good podcasts plural remove that barrier to entry and allow that person to sit right in the middle of two people having a conversation and that to me is it i mean you know it i knew i enjoyed other people's podcasts so, but I'm just one person. But when I started this and then gave it time and was diligent and researched well and and hopefully shut the hell up when the other person was talking to let them speak, which is kind of funny because we're going back and forth on this one. Um, that really made me realize, okay, this is what 
not everyone wants. A lot of people want TikToks. They want you to lip sync to a song and do a silly dance for 12 seconds and that's it. That's all they want out of life. But that's fast food again, brother. You know, that's fast food and people feel so malnourished. You know, what people don't realize about us because, and we're not, we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we're, we're, sometimes we're taking physical notes. People just hear the audio side of this, but we're making notes, but also taking mental notes as well. And I hear you speaking there and it really reminds me when you talk about becoming more of an active listener and, and learning to paraphrase and learning that are you listening just waiting for your turn to speak or are you listening to respond? Do you know what I mean? And hearing what you've said there, I wanted to jump in to, to part of the aspect you were speaking about, about obesity and stuff like that. But I have had to get better as well and not interrupting people because I get so excited and so enthusiastic at hearing that somebody's passion. It's like you want to metaphorically jump up and high five them. But if you interrupt that flow, you suffocate the conversation. You know, when you're talking, all you hear is stuff you already know. You know what I mean? You're just fucking, you're speaking into that echo chamber. But then when you allow somebody else to speak, you're learning, you're absorbing that. And also when you said there about people opening up about their challenges and, and that acting as almost like, you know, an entry point for people. There's something that people can plug into. If we show ourselves, like in the world of TikTok, like in the world of social media, like you said, that we are just this shiny beacon of excellence, there's no purchase point. There's no point for somebody to hold on to. There's no point for somebody to connect to. And like you said, when people share these things, People have been wandering a desert looking for that oasis, which is this someone demonstrating that vulnerability because we're all supposed to be so perfect now. We're supposed to be the best athlete, the consummate professional, the best businessman, the best everything. But when you share those levels of humility and like you've done with so many of your guests, it gives somebody a way in. It stops somebody feeling alone because they can't find anybody that's like them, that's had that same challenge and they feel like they're heading into a cave. Do you know what I mean? They can see no light at the end of the tunnel because there's not a fucking tunnel. To them, it's a cave. I'm heading into something. I can't see the other side. But when I listen to some of the people you share with and some of the people that I speak with, like you mentioned Ivan then, you know, this guy that had a life-changing, you know, bike accident and someone died during it and, you know, one of his close friends lost their life. He lost the ability to walk. He had a collapsed lung and he was a firefighter. You know, somebody that's just had that injury, someone that's just had an injury like that, who cannot see the other side of this. They can never see themselves. I had a firefighter on the other week who just had a stroke. You know, he's in his early 30s and he had a stroke at a fitness competition and he had to learn how to speak again. He had to learn how to walk again. But when he was heading into that, um, he was getting told that it was a stroke and he won't be operational ever again. So many people are heading into those caves, but if they can, they always say you've got to see it to be it. And if they can see somebody on the other side, and in, the, in, a, in a diluted version, you know, I, I think of yourself and myself, you with the troubles you've had with your back and, you know, that despondency you've had with the fire service at different points in your career, me with the drugs and not seeing the other side of it. When you can speak from the other side of it, when people can see that there's, there's a successful James Gearing, understanding that he has more value to add than just when he was operational, you still connect and share those words now. And for me, it's knowing there's something on the other side of it. But when we're not open enough to have those conversations, people can just feel so alone. And we're getting worse at that. We're, we're, we're getting worse at not having these conversations, at not learning the art of listening in the art of conversation, because it is, it's like a dance. And so many times, because we're not used to it, we just butt heads all the time. People just bash against each other. And that's what causes so much animosity and so much frustration and so much pain in the world. It's that inability to seek to understand. We don't want to listen to listen. We just want to listen so we can then broadcast again. 
So I have to say as well, because I agree with everything you just said, but with your interview with Ivan, being you know an expat, so being British, but I've been in America, I think 20 years now. So um, it's been a while. It was such a British conversation. And I think this is the problem because I, I hear people say, you know, the Americans are a little bit more open. I think they are a little bit more apt to share their feelings, you know, generationally here versus... Fuck, we're terrible ever, dude. We're fucking terrible. So you have a dude that was a, you know, elite, elite motorbike rider, rider, you know, gets taken out by the beginning of this, you know, multi-bike crash ends up smashing pretty much everything from, you know, from the shoulders down. Well, everything, really, because, I mean, his head, some shoulders down and up. Um, <laughs> has, you know, the brain injury that 90% of the people never even wake up from. And it was so like, yeah, you know, I suppose I was a little bit hurt. You know, and it's just, and but it's not a criticism at all. It's just that yeah, stiff upper lip, stoic, you know, British culture that we come from which i think still comes from like the world war ii generation that were absolutely incredible that is such a a positive trait but i feel like that same element is also what builds a brick wall and stops our men and women from being able to again separate the yin from the yang and remember that each one of us is both and you know Mm. that you know what we what we see as our world war ii generation who are phenomenal, the ones that just hold on to that and never put the soft side back were probably the ones that drank themselves to death in you know the 50s yeah. and 60s. They did, 100%. And, and, and you're so right. It's almost our greatest strength and our biggest weakness. You know, we're so self-deprecating in the UK, man. It's so fucking hard. You know, when I have these conversations with people, it can be such a long process. And I know the life cycle of some of your guests, you can connect with somebody, but it's just because they're so busy that they've not, that they've not been able to come back in. And that, that's the case with me sometimes, but sometimes as well, it's people feeling brave enough to share their story, feeling like, you know, people like Ivan, who go, oh, who, who am I to talk about it? And, you know, it's not really that interesting. And, you know, I don't think anybody would be interested. I'm like, dude, are you fucking serious? You nearly lost your life and you were still supporting your children and you lost, you know, your ability to be a firefighter, the thing you dreamed about all your life. And you'd, you'd built yourself to the very precipice of this sport. That is, you know, I mean, I mean, motor racing is huge in the UK. I mean, it's huge all over the world. And this guy was a world champion at it, you know, multiple times. And he'd, He'd had a hobby that nearly took his life and took the life of one of his best friends. But if we don't get over ourselves and, and talk about that and share that journey, like you said, how many people will just fall off the, fall off the back end of it? You know, they won't see a way through and they will just try to find their own solution, which will often mean alcohol, self-medicating or even taking their own life as, a, as I've seen so many people do. So pride is great. Um, it, what gives us that stoicism and I get that and that's strong and, and I have aspects of that myself, but the true strength, the true humility for me is being able to speak about those challenges from a position of maybe making it through or even just, I mean, I'm going through challenges now. You know, you're going through challenges. We all are. We're not speaking of a position of like we've made it. You know, we're still on the goddamn journey. We're just a different place. You know, you're four years ahead of me in one thing, but maybe you're two years behind in another. Do you know what I mean? We're all at different positions on that journey. And Ivan himself, you know, he, he's, he's risen to the heights of one thing and now he has different ambitions in his life. That was just one chapter of his life. Um, and we have the ability now to write multiple chapters. But if you keep getting stuck on the same page, there's, there's no solutions for you there. So many people 
live in the same place and i don't mean that geographically but they keep climbing the same mountain there's a great book which i think i'd encourage everybody to go read called the second mountain and that speaks about only from climbing one thing in life and 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 realizing that it's maybe not the thing you thought you were you were bigger for like for you that second mountain is what you're doing now Like you may have had the analogy that firefighting was the precipice of what you needed to do and that was all you're ever going to do. But, but only from the perspective of the top of that mountain could you see that there was other peaks in life that you wanted to go and climb. But in doing so, you have to climb down that mountain to climb the next one. Do you know what I mean? It's like climbing up one ladder and realizing that you picked the wrong ladder or maybe you now want to climb somewhere else, but you first got to have the humility to climb back down. You know, I've had so many businesses through my life. I've owned two gyms. I've had a cleaning company. I owned a pizza company. You know, we have a accommodation company where people come and stay with us at different accommodations that we have in different areas of the UK. And each time I built one of those, it was the journey that I loved. Some were successful, some we sold, some we kept. But I knew that every time I did that, it was just another chapter. And that's okay. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to keep doing one thing forever only from having the humility of selling that or um, de-chunking it or taking it apart, going through the valley, will you ever reach the next mountain? But you can't just come from jump from one top of one mountain to another. Like you went from being a consummate professional and, and somebody that had so many wins and so many rescues and so many achievements in your career as a firefighter to becoming a fucking nobody in the world of podcasting again. You know, but only if you've got the humility to be a student again, can you ever really go to that second mountain. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing where the, where the ego comes in because I mean again, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to ever be anybody. It was funny my uh I was at a GoRuck event um earlier this year and we were just in line waiting to get someone to eat and uh I had a behind the shield shirt on. I had a bunch of made where you know if you sweat the message comes in, in the back. It's a pretty cool shirt, but oh, I, I don't I don't going to get that. Yeah, well I'm actually going to get some printed because I am going to be coming to the UK the end of this year, so I do want to get some so I can at least send them out, but it's just such a pain internationally with all the customs and everything. Um but anyway, so someone's behind me was like, "Oh, you know, behind the shield. I love that show." And I was like, "Oh, Brilliant. That's fantastic. That's actually my podcast. And he goes, what, what? And then it was so weird because this is just another guy that I'm, uh, you know, we're in the same event. We're both human beings. He's probably a better athlete than I am based on his physique. And then my son starts giggling because this guy's, you know, kind of all excited about, but that's, that's the, it's a good thing and a bad thing because obviously as a normal, humble human being, you almost feel like embarrassed for that reaction. But this, you know, you're, you're glad that they're excited about something you've created. But I work so hard to make it almost anonymous because I don't want my face to be out because it's not about me. It's about the guest. So, yeah. you know, that, that ego. And I, and we talked about it, I think when we spoke on the phone before, I've watched people start something online with the fire service with all the best intentions. But it kind of morphs into every single day it's a video of them working out. And it's like, well, is this still the message or has this become more of a narcissistic project? And I don't mean that as a criticism. I think that's no, that's no, the, that's yeah. the slippery slide of, of, you know, social media. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing more humbling than putting yourself into obscurity again and then being able to create something that isn't about you it's about everyone else except you you're just surely you know you're just trying to create this thing 
um you know it really is a, a an experiment in in ego because as i used to joke in in the fire service i call them the magic trousers you know you put on a pair of bunker pants and <laughs> girls that wouldn't have looked at you twice walking around town all of a sudden you're attractive you're like wow these things are amazing well you've given up the magic trousers now so now you know there's nothing less you know sexy than someone who sits in a chair with a microphone in front of them doing zoom calls <laughs> that's what's so crazy brother and you make a great point there that it's almost it's incredible what you can achieve if you don't care who gets the credit. You know, it's behind the shield. It's not called James Geary. You know, as it's the Firefighters podcast. It's not the Pete Wakefield podcast. Do you know what I mean? And I say that with all the due respect to Joe Rogan. He's <laughs> called the Joe Rogan experience, but I want to be part of something. And I always say that about the emergency services. You know, we are, you know, we're ambassadors for it, but we're also, we're just filling a seat. Do you know what I mean? We are just there for a period of time trying to leave it better than how we found it. But we are not that thing. That thing is so much bigger than us. It stands for so much more than us. That's why it's so, it's built around the teams and it's built around the people that are in it. It's going to be here long after we're gone. It was here long before we were here. And I'd love to see that with, with behind the shield. You know, I, I hope one day that maybe, you know, the pod, the podcast I run is, is, has different hosts at times, you know, and other people want to take it on. And that's what I love most when people hear a great episode and they share it. They're not sharing it because of me. Fucking, it's not even got me in it half the time. I'm a facilitator, and like, and I'm sure you've had it. And it's kind of when we were preparing for this conversation, I said, "Dude, are you happy for me to ask you a bunch of things?" Because as a fan, as a, as a you know, listener of the Behind the Shield, I enjoy it. But I'd love to learn more about you. I'd love to learn more about your past. And I've read your book, but with the greatest respect, I'm sure so many people haven't because they've been drawn to the podcast and not realize that you're also an author. And we have it in a smaller fashion where people say, oh, Pete, do a, do a podcast about yourself. I'm like, well, and maybe it's again that Western Western world thing about, well, dude, it's not really about me, you know. Yeah, I do a bunch of stuff and I've, maybe I've done some stuff and I've achieved things and gold medals this and, you know, rescues that. But what we are trying to do is more important than than who we are. And they always say the needs of the many must outweigh the needs of few or the one. If you're trying to do something like you've created that can affect those four million people, then that will stand at the test of time because James Geary will be gone one day. But what you've created, that's why I always refer to podcasting as eternal content because you're creating a time capsule, an audio time capsule that you're going to bury in the ether, in the internet. And morbidly, you know, I look forward to being 15 years down the line and people listen to things and maybe that person's no longer with us. You know, I mean, dude, oh, Jesus, we're about to release a podcast, right, with uh, an RAF nurse. So that's the Royal Air Force in the UK, right? And she is a mother of three. She's got a seven-year-old girl and twin five-year-old girls. And she's in stage four bone cancer. She's had cancer five times. Yeah, she's had it in her, in her breast. She's had it in her shoulder. And uh, now it's come back and it's, it's game over. She lives her life three months at a time where she has her blood tests and they change the, the chemo that she's doing and the radiotherapy and the, the medication that she takes. And when she reached out to us, so we, we run something called the Pink Firefighters as well. You'll have seen it, I'm sure, some little bits here and there. We raise money for breast cancer awareness. Um, and she reached out and said, I think it's great what you do. I've seen you at some events. It's really amazing. Thank you. And I typically wanted to learn more about her and appreciate her reaching out to us. And as I learned more about her, she explained that 
she was perhaps not long for this world and she's currently taking the time to spend more time with her children and then i learned of her work in the rf she used to fly she was one of the first ones that would they would set up the field hospitals in c-17 so in these big aircraft and they would fly out and bring back our injured personnel she did one of the first triple amputees brought them back from iraq and 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 she did work in germany and bosnia and all this sort of stuff so when i learned about her past and learning where she is now she said i want to create something that my daughters can listen to when i'm gone and when she said that, dude, it fucking hit me. And, it, and I, as much as I'd always said it, you know, yeah, I'll create an audio time capsule. It sounds like a cool thing. But that's what it is. She's she's not going to be with us for maybe much longer. And she recently got an extension where they they, they looked at her medication and her they, they, they basically do the blood work. And I'll butcher this to death and people will know far more about it than I will. But they do your blood work. And it's to do with the level at which your bones are deteriorating is what they use as a marker to how she just so everyone's bones are always deteriorating now bones break down and they regenerate all the time so you're supposed to have i think it's like 200 parts per million or something like that in your blood hers are at like eight or nine hundred so her bones are decaying very quickly she will soon have to have surgeries to remove parts of her body which are and the whole thing will go eventually but she's living in a state of rapid decay and every time she gets given that extension, the most recent one, she said, I recently got given one for, for like three months. So I've changed the medication and, I'm, and I've committed these three months to writing those letters to my children. So she's written them for 10 years of age, for 15, for 18, and even for a partner. You know, have you, have you ever seen the, the, there's a film called P.S. I Love You. Have you seen that? I know of it, yeah. And effectively, there's a similar idea in there where this person writes letters to their partner to encourage them, you know, the different stages to go and pursue different things in life, to pursue another partner. She's written kids, you know, letters to her kids to open on their wedding day. And these things might not be for 10 or 15 years. And that just, that humbles me so much. And, and I think the world of the first responder as well. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Cause I remember reading about, you know, you, in your book, you speak about going to back to beds and learning about people's past and stuff like that and how it humbles you because you understand people people are are very complex and we don't fully understand everything that goes into them but when you see them at their worst it really gives you a bit more appreciation for how good you've got it and when i sat with her and i thought about my own children and i came home and i saw my daughter in bed and, and i thought shit you know all the stuff that i've been worrying about or all the things that have been stressing me at work how fucking dare I have those concerns when somebody like this is so goddamn optimistic and they're planning for a future that they're not going to be part of. And I just found that so surreal. Um, and what you're doing, you're further down the journey than me. And have you, have you had any guests that are no longer with us? And can you imagine what that will be like in 15 years when these people have retired or they're, they're, they're past? Yeah, no, I have. I've had, um, I was, when we were talking then, I was just racking my brain and I apologize because I've forgotten the gentleman's name. I mean, 600 plus episodes, this, you know, but, um, I'll have to look it up. But I had, if, if you have ever seen the video of this incredible man who would push his son through triathlons, so he would run with him and his son had the cerebral palsy. So he was in a chair and then he would do the swim portion. He would tow him in a dinghy. And he would swim with his son in the dinghy. And then he had a, um, a bike that also had a seat in the front. Um, well, I had him on and about six months later, he passed away. I had a Miami-Dade firefighter who's one of the very first firefighter paramedics in America. Um, he passed away. He had heart failure and passed away a few months later. I've got... Um, 
some incredible guests that are in their 90s on the show. One was a World War II veteran who was in Iwo Jima, who was injured in Iwo Jima. Um, one who was an Auschwitz survivor that became a psychologist. So, you know, they, they are still with us and still healthy and thriving, but obviously there will come a day. I say that my grandmother's about 105. Um, so, you know, we'll see. She might, uh, she might still be, you know, thriving. <laughs> who knows? But, uh, but yeah, so th- there is an element of that. And obviously, sadly, that's just the people who are statistically towards the end of an average human lifespan. But I've got so many friends that were struck by things that three months later, they were dead as well. I mean, it might be you, it might be me, it might, I mean, who knows? So I agree 100%. And my biggest, not regret, because I couldn't turn back the time, but I wish that this had been around 20 years previous so that that incredible World War II generation that we've lost almost everyone from because they didn't feel that they could talk and you know this this one vet that I had he was open about his PTSD and it was like Frank Wright's name and it's just you know it's incredible to hear someone who was an elder because in I've talked about this a lot in America I think in the UK probably Australia as well there's kind of a a belittling of our elderly. But if you look at more ancient cultures, they're revered. And so that storytelling from someone who's been on this planet 90, 100 years, you know, the lessons that are ingrained in them and they're lost. And so I think that, you know, what you're doing and what I'm doing and what everyone else is doing with documentaries and podcasts and radio interviews and whatever it looks like, um, that's preserving that person's life and the wisdom in that person's life. Otherwise, what do we have left? fucking TikToks, Fox and CNN and we're fucking doomed, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, it's very important. That's it, man. When you hear somebody speak, you just wish you could have heard your grandparents, do you know what I mean? And their passion and their variety and their gregariousness and their character. And there's just so much depth in being able to hear people communicate in that way, you know? I, yeah, I have the greatest respect for books and articles and, and photos, but to hear those words from somebody you know, would just strike up so much emotion and so much inspiration as well to hear the challenges they were facing because otherwise we add all of our own filters to it and we 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 have this perception of what we thought their life was like. But to hear it, man, that's the biggest gift. Absolutely. Now, I want to go to some closing questions before I let you go. But before I do, what we haven't heard yet is why you chose to start a podcast. So I'd love to hear that story. I mean, if you can ask me about mine. How did yours start? So the podcast for me came from when I had those first conversations as as the, the challenge I was going through, drug addiction and moving away from that. Those people asked me some, some insightful questions that really questioned my belief about who I was, about what motivated me, about what my drivers were. And these things threw me into a spiral of questioning why I did the things that I did. And, and, and I took so many of those lessons with me because as the serial addict, I then became addicted to human behavior. I, I wanted to learn more about why we think these things. And I went on all the courses and I did the NLP and I did the Tony Robbins and I, you know, I did all of that aspect. And as I entered into the emergency services, I began to utilize those tools, those tools that I'd seen benefit me. I sat with people, I asked those questions, I listened, you know, I took notes, I sat there patiently, I let the silences grow. And those things that I learned from people made me think, God, I can't be the only person that that is inspired by this. I'm not I'm not so much of a freak that no one else would find value. How many people have you had a conversation with and you think, 
God, if only my friends could hear you, or if only my daughter could hear you, or if only, you know, you need to speak to so-and-so because they'd take so much value from a conversation with you. So it came effectively out of that, you know, I wanted to share the incredible things that people were telling me, and I couldn't find it anywhere else. You know, like you said, the people don't do this in our sector, and so much of the time, you know, you referenced earlier that you became empowered when you left the service, uh, left, the, left the fire service, because you could speak freely. And I think whilst I walk the thin red line of trying to keep my job and not getting sacked and then having these conversations, only through doing that and only through, I always think of myself as the canary down the mine. I always say to people, look, if I've still got my job, then you're okay. You know, you can, you can communicate, you can talk about these things because only through doing that will we inspire the next generation. Will we share the lessons? Will we empower and embolden leaders? And those people that are making these really challenging decisions, if we don't share with them our own stories, then we're doing it, we're doing a disservice to the next generation. I only benefited. I'm an accumulation of all the people I've had conversations with. All of us are. We're like a thousand fingerprints on who we are now. It's, has had so many touch points, has had so many influences. And I want to give people the same benefits that I've had from the people I've had discussions with. So I'm always happy to sound like the idiot. I'm always happy to fumble my way through a conversation and fuck it up and get it wrong because it's not about me. It's like exactly what we've been saying. It's more important than me. It's more important than you. It's being able to facilitate those conversations for people because then when I get the messages back and we get the emails in and people say, God, you know, I'd only read this one article about that person or I never knew that or I would never have learned that from that person because where else are they going to hear it? Where else are they going to read it? There's, there's nowhere. It doesn't exist. And knowing, like you've said, you're filling up the dam now. You're creating something that you won't see the fruits of this labor for years. Maybe never for some people if they haven't got the humility to keep learning, um, the flexibility to keep adapting, and the patience and perseverance to be consistent and keep going down the rabbit hole and knowing that you're not doing it perfect. I, I listen to your stuff and I listen to my stuff. I'm like, oh God, we've got to do it better. We've got to do it different. We've got to change this. We've got to change that. But you know what? I'm not James Geary, you know? And that's one of my best strengths. And I say that with respect and admiration because I'm my own unique fuck up, you know, and only through sharing that and the conversation, I could, I could have every guest that you've ever had on and it would be a totally different conversation. And that's what's beautiful about it. People will take value from you, they'll take value from me and more than either of us, they'll take value from the incredible people that you're, you, James, are brave enough to go and have those conversations with, to be the student, to, to put yourself up there ready to fail, ready to embarrass yourself because you know, and I know, that the benefit far outweighs it. You are just a conduit. You are just part of the process to something that is going to serve so many people, hopefully long after we're gone. And, and that's what truly inspired me to do it because I wasn't seeing those, wasn't seeing those conversations being had and I knew how much benefit I took from it. And I wanted to give that to other people. Love it. It sounds like we've got very, very similar missions. So just before we go to the closing question, touching on one person who I just literally today, after I'm done with this, I'm going to finish editing and put it out. Um, but is also the person that connected us is Johnny from uh, William Wood Watches. So talk to me about how you came across him. And let's just do a little discussion on him because I was uh, I was blown away not only with his backstory, but the altruism that's woven into his company now. Johnny is, he's just such an inspirational dude for me you know he fell hook line and sinker into the story of his grandfather 
and some of the heroism that he was part of in the UK Fire and Rescue Service and the respect and admiration he has for people in the emergency services inspires me on an almost daily basis. You know, Johnny came across um, what I was trying to do in our very infancy and we connected on these shared values and shared morals of trying to find the best pieces of the UK Fire and Rescue Service and our emergency services in creating something that people could take value from. And that's effectively what he did with the watches. You know, he's, they are layered with over a hundred years of history from the UK Fire and Rescue Service. Uh, you know, they're the, the hoses that make up the watch straps and, you know, the, the helmets from the Mayweather helmets that they have emblazoned in the side of the watches. What he's created there has been built out of the passion of his grandfather and what that stood for. Um, so we connected on that. We have, we have almost informal coaching with each other. We correct and calibrate each other. We encourage each other. And he lives what he, what, what he espouses. You know, he is so inspirational to me because he is doing that travel. He is capturing those moments with his family. He recently got engaged and he, there's no BS with him. You know, he really is just trying to create something that captures the best aspects of the fire service and gives them a way to live forever you know i carry my willy will watch everywhere that i go and it it allows me to have that pulse of the fire service on my wrist everywhere i go and him doing that and i know they've launched in the us now and they've got the fdny watches and they've got the tunnels to towers and it's just so it's so authentic if you feel it and you win when i wear it it's it makes me feel, it makes me, like I said before, if I was here long before me or here long after I'm gone, that allows me to carry history with me. Um, and it inspires me. And he's so young as well, dude. That guy is, is, is making some serious shapes and he knows he's always learning as well. He goes out into the US and it's a whole new market for him and the way he connects with people and the humility with which he tries to help them create something like he's done with the FDNY, like he's done with the Turn of the Towers watches, create something that they can capture their stories, but they can capture their history. Um, that's my connection with Johnny. And it was just, it was just crazy that again, we started a relationship where there was no expectation of reward and it's, it's brought me to you and, and vice versa. And it's amazing. Like we said, right at the beginning, you know, like we said, right at the beginning with the scouting world, a true good deed is connecting with somebody where there's no expectation of value on return. And he didn't have to introduce me to you and, and vice versa. But it wouldn't have brought us together and I hope we have adventures in the future and I hope I'm able to to meet you and your family one day, whether you come over here or I go over there. Um, it's amazing what you can achieve if there's no expectation. Absolutely. Well, they sent me um, one of the watches, the uh, the Valor series, I believe it is. Yeah, Valiant, the Valiant watch. Valiant, yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely beautiful. And, you know, again, when... I'm not a big jewelry wearer. I told them in the interview, like I have a wedding ring and that's it. Um, and, uh, because we had to wear a watch for so long, you know, basic kind of, uh, first aid stuff, taking pulses and things. And after a while as a medic, you're like, you can look at someone and say, all right, they're breathing this way, their heart rate's this way, you know, just holding for a few seconds. Um, so I kind of discarded that, but. My wife's always said, well, you, don't you have a nice watch when we go out, you know, with your suit or whatever? So when they sent it, I was just like, this is it. This this, this is the piece of jewelry <laughs> that'll be that heirloom.
plume now because which which strap have you got on it? Because it comes with like the, I mean they have the tiny wear ones. They have the blue, the red, the yellow. What what do you what do you rock? What are your favorite? Um, so the, it comes with the red. I think I'm going to leave that for now. But again, it's interchangeable. So if I happen to you know be wearing something and another one, I think there's a blue and like a beige one in there too. Mm. But again, they're well, all you British know, fire hose. The hose themselves, they they're they're all part of actually cut down proper hose. So you'll find if you look through it, like mine's got different markings on it, and it's it's actually done. You know, a minimum of ten years because all of this hose gets destroyed. Usually, it just gets thrown away. This allows that experience and that sort of, you know, ethos of it to continue to live because they'll have have mine's impregnated with oil on part of it, and to so many people, they might look at it and think like you've got it dirty or something like that. But that's what gives it the character. You know, I always rock the red. The red is my favorite. I have on the Valiant watch, um, and for me, it's like I can imagine it being thrown down the side of a building or thrown down a highway. Um, it's been there. It's done it. Somebody's used this, and now it's been repurposed, and it will live with me forever. I've had my watch for Christ like four years now, and I don't even take it off when I shower or when I swim because I just love it. Yeah, I looked at the marking. I was like, "Oh, okay, this is also a dive watch, like hundred hundred yeah, meter yeah, yeah. depth." So I'm not going to be and going all unique as well. If you look on the back of it, mine is number. I'm looking at. It, I've literally got it in my hand. Mine is number 19 of 250. So they always do a limited with every single one, but also they're totally affordable. You know, they're not like I think this one retailed at like 700 quid or 600 quid in the UK. So, and he's always said, people have said, oh, you know, come back to me when it's five grand or something like that. Because some people just think there's an association with the value and cost. If it costs more, it must be better. But man, these hold up. And I've seen when they've gone to give away um, like money they've raised or they give away a watch and there's other people there from, you know, Rolex and all this sort of stuff. And the William Woods are the ones that get all the attention because they still... They meet the same spec. You're just not paying for a brand. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what's certain. There'd be an irony in, in offering first responders something they can't even afford. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's what allows him to stay connected to the true audience because this is affordable to people like me. You know, I just have a firefighter's wage. I'm not, I'm not crazy wealthy. Yeah, no, exactly. But I think it's, it's expensive enough. Whereas he talked about, um, you know, we, we're notorious in the US for giving, you know, axes for the end of career. And I was telling Johnny, I'm like, the only axe I ever want to own is the one that's sitting in my garage that went with me around my waist to all the fires. Cause on the truck company in California, you wear one uh, on a, on a strap. So that's my axe. So anything, you know, kind of like a, a trophy company, I, don't, I wouldn't want that anyway. So as an amazing retirement promotion, whatever present, whether it's from family members, whether it's from the crew department, what another incredible option that you can literally have a piece of fire service history, but in a brand new thing that you will literally take everywhere. It won't sit in your office or in a, in a, in a, in a box in the garage somewhere, but you're, you're, every time you look at it, you're reminded of the service that you gave to your country. Serves a purpose. That's it. Lives with you. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the first of the closing question I'd love to ask you, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? You mentioned um, The Second Mountain. So there any other titles you want to throw in there? <sighs> Let me have a look. So I'm, I'm an audio fiend, brother. My, uh, and that's evident with the world of podcasting and stuff like that. What am I listening to at the minute? So literally, as I pull that up, we've got one more light because I was listening back to yourself. You're about to write that down, aren't you? You can write one more <laughs> what light. What was it called? One that's, more. <laughs> it's your book, brother. One more light. That's only because I was re-listening back to that. I love that one. Um, but what have I got else in there? Um, the last thing I listened to before that. Um, so we've got the second mountain. Um, I Spy. 
Uh, I Spy is a wonderful story by a guy called Tom Marcus. And uh, he's a, um, uh, he was part of this, not Secret Service, part of MI5 in the UK. And he actually, um, I'll not ruin it for people, but it's effectively a story of how he struggled through his career and found, um, he actually left his role because of the mental trauma that he'd had ongoing. Mm -hmm. And he struggled with that all through his entire career. And it's a story around how he joined it, the broken childhood that led him into um, the world of, of, of MI5 and the Secret Service. Um, atomic Habits, you know, something I always recommend to people. Um, and actually, there was, a, there was a new book, it only came out a couple of years ago by um, a guy called Chris Voss. I don't know if you had him on the podcast. I have not, no. I don't even recognize the name. Chris, Chris Voss um, was one of the lead negotiators um, in the US, hostage negotiators, and the book's called Never Split the Difference. And what I love most about that is, again, there's so many conversational pieces around there, around, um, you know, negotiating with people because life is negotiation, life is sales, life is communication. And those different ways to ask a better question. And this kind of alludes back to our world of podcasting. If you learn how to ask a better question, you get a better answer. Even if you're asking that question of yourself, if you ask yourself, why didn't I get that job why didn't that person listen to me your answer will be because you're shit because you're rubbish you know but if you learn to ask better questions of yourself if you learn to ask better questions of life you'll get a better answer and that falls back to the art of conversation you know our ability to have better conversations is our ability to be more empathetic to be a better listener but to also to ask better questions be present about what you're doing um, so that's a couple of my favorites. Uh, obviously there's a load of Jocko Willing because I scroll back through my phone there. Um, but yeah, that's probably some of the first ones that I'd most recently listened to. Beautiful. Yeah, there's a couple of titles that I hadn't heard before. So thank you. Um, all right. Well, next question then. What about movies or films and or documentaries that you love? I mean, I've got to go. I've got to go stereotypical. I mean, you know, when I first joined the service and I still like to watch them now, you know, Backdraft, Ladder 49, you know, all the goddamn classics, you know, I'm still corny as hell when I like to look at fire service, um, memorabilia and stuff like that. Um, other films, uh, I always loved, um, Patriot with Mel Gibson, you know, and I, I often think about some of the decisions I made as a kid. There was a quote in that film where he says, you know, I often, fear that my sins will return to visit me and the cost is more than I can bear. And and I'm not religious, but I, I think there's an aspect in there about karma and there's an aspect in there around what you put into the universe will come back around. So that's why I always say, you know, do that good deed every day. Um, do something without the expectation of something in return because the, the universe is listening. The universe knows what you're doing. And even if it doesn't come back in a relationship, it might come back physically. It might cost you something down the line. So to be the best version of yourself, to get the most out of the world, you've got to put the best into it. Um, and that's what I took away from that film. Um, I'm going to be so boring and say, I don't watch documentaries. I don't watch TV. It's literally, man, we've got one TV in our whole goddamn house. I would have any TVs in our bedrooms or anything like that because my biggest interest on them at home is my family is the people that I'm with and that might sound corny and BS but I allow films sounds horrible but like I allow films but I allow myself to watch a film because it's again what do you think you're getting out of it I wouldn't sit and watch a film by myself but if my daughter says hey daddy can watch a film together what am I doing there 
Well, I'm actually spending an hour and a half. Sometimes I will watch a film with my daughter and I will spend 90% of the film watching her. And as creepy as that might sound, <laughs> I'm, share, I'm sharing something with her. Do you know what I mean? I'm sharing a moment with her and I'm seeing her take joy from something. So to me, I would find it hard to justify sitting down and watching a film on my own. As sad as that might sound, I like I like to work. I like to be productive. But if I'm sitting and sharing a moment with my daughter, then I do that. So we watch. For, and also, I also know there's a time cap. You know, we'll watch it for an hour and a half, watch it for two hours, and then we can go do something else. I don't watch TV. I don't watch the news because I always say if it's important enough, someone else is going to tell me. I've got to stand guard at the the door of my mind and be careful what I'm letting in there because it does affect you and it and most of that shit is toxic, brother. I know you know that. You talk about it all the time. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Backdraft Ladder 49 before I forget, because I like to ask my, you know, brothers and sisters of the British Fire Service this question. It absolutely nauseates me when I hear American firefighters belittling, making fun of the British fire helmet. And the reason being is not <laughs> for anything other than everything we've been talking about today is about reverse engineering the damage that's been done smashing the facade and the american fire helmet to me is the the symbol of mental health obesity all these things that that we suffer from which how we've always done it and i have worn the giant you know east coast helmet for most of my career i wore the much smaller west coast helmet when i was in anaheim and just between the two just a helmet no gizmos on it at all the West Coast, give me the West Coast one any day of the week as far as actual functionality. Then, you know, I've, I've actually seen at conferences the, you know, the helmet that you guys wear. You know, I've heard people say, well, without any of the bells and whistles, it's not as impressive. Okay. Well, that's, that's fine. It's not designed for that. It's designed to have the torch in the front, the comms in the ears, the visors that come down. But I look at, I've watched myself and other people on scene. We look up before the helmet comes off. You know, you go to extricate. You're a patient, you have to climb inside the, the, the car to either pull the interior away to see the structure or you're holding C-spine on a patient, the helmet goes on the top of the car. You go any sort of special operations, you know, um, team comes in, they're not wearing the giant leather helmet, they're putting on their little regular helmet. So talk to me about, you know, if, if you were wearing a different one before and what the English people, the actual people who are wearing the fucking helmet, what is your perspective of it? Because I have a right behind me, I have this, the, these, this art, and one of them is the specs of the helmet that we wear. And it says, I think 1937. So as I point out, the Navy SEALs don't wear tin helmets anymore, you know? So I would love to hear from a British firefighter what you love or what you absolutely hate about the, the helmets that you guys have today. So, I mean, the helmet conversation started way back. People think that, I mean, we all think this. Americans think that it came from there. I mean, ours actually came um, sort of from France, to be honest. So, Ermacy Shaw, if people know who that is, if you look back at London Fire Brigade and the origins of London Fire Brigade, it came from a guy called Sir um, Ermacy Shaw. Most people don't know this. You can actually pick up his old original manuals, a lot of the firefighting manuals, and a lot, to be fair, of what the Americans have now taken over and learnt from, all came from our original fire ground drill books, which was from, you know, the Metropolitan Fire Brigade in London in sort of back in, in 1868. This is when we first started and our helmets came from Paris. You know, he, he went over there and, um, he saw what they were using. 
And we brought that back, and they're the same kind of helmets now. Uh, the Mayweather's, you know, people see that that brass firefighting helmet. That's actually what sits in the in the wristwatch of the Willymore watches, funnily enough. And since then, that's back when we were wearing just plastic fire suits, and you know, stuff was melting on us. We didn't have any PP. We didn't have any um, real um, SCBA. We didn't have any um, firefighting breathing apparatus equipment. And the helmets since then have gone significantly lighter. Yours are still so goddamn big. You know, ours have got significantly smaller. Um, the way in which we use them, you guys have still got the, the flash hoods that hang off the back at times. We went to, um, a different, different layering of flash hoods that we just wear at pretty much every single incident. Um, you guys seem to self deploy on a lot of stuff, whereas our, um, our structures around breathing apparatus is done in no better or no worse, but it's done in much more of a controlled method. When I see firefighters in the US, and you help me understand this because you guys can effectively commit to a building and it almost looks like you make your own self decision of when you commit under breathing apparatus. You don't work under a, under a wider structure. Would I be right in saying that? Um, I mean, basically, if it were any, any ideal H, you should be wearing your pack. But yeah, I mean, you're gonna, it depends on, on the commander and what's different I think for us versus you is that every city and county is siloed they make their own rules it's completely independent which is can be good, good so or can crazy, be brother. terrible so um, what you will have is some people that only have to say a few words and they're cohesive well-trained fit firefighters will go in and enact whatever needs to be done and it's amazing you know and you hear I think from the English side you know looking at the Americans oh they're kind of cowboys and all that stuff and then vice versa, I've heard Americans say, oh, the British never go inside. They fight everything from outside. Both, both are, well, both are true, maybe on one incident that you watch, but culturally. I think we are too safety conscious. I agree. We are, we are too safety conscious but, at times. But, you know, you go in. I mean, I had Ricky Nuttall on here who was, you know, on the top floor of, of Grenfell. So that completely, you know, blows that myth. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of departments here that will, will, you know, not try and commit anyone inside. But again, do you want to put people inside if, if it's just a burning building, a giant dumpster fire, basically, you know? So there are all those decisions that need to be made. But I think it, it varies from department to department. But, you know, I think tactically, you know, there's a lot of things that we do very, very well here. But, um, you know, if, if you're not being led by good leaders at the top and you have a high training standard and a high fitness standard, then there can be a lot of um, improvisation on a fire ground, which might be what you're seeing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that we are too risk averse at times, but when people look at the British fire service, a lot of ours came out of the military, and it was a it was a stronger command structure. Again, Air Massey Shaw was came came from the naval background, and a lot of what we still do now is built out of that command structure. And we try and look at, I suppose, our firefighters as more of like this the Swiss Army knife, whereby. Americans will have a, a rescue team and they might have individual roles on a fire crew. All of our firefighters do, do effectively every role. Um, so we don't have specialists in that capacity. But, but getting back to what you were saying about the fire helmets, um, the greatest developments we've seen, I mean, some of the works with the podcast is a company called Rosenbauer and they have, they call it the heroes firefighter helmets, probably one of the most successful products that they do. And that is really where I see the greatest standard of where we are now so it's significantly lighter it's very popular in a lot of the stuff we do with um the firefighters combat challenge and the firefighter british firefighter challenge because they are so light and versatile um they're significantly smaller than they ever used to be 
Um, they used to be metal. They used to be heavy and jarring. Now, um, you know, speaking about that tactical athlete aspect to it, the kit that we wear and the PPE that we use allows us to be so much more dynamic and so much more agile in the operational role that we carry out um, without these big lumbering pieces of kit. And I think as the role becomes more and more diverse, you know, we didn't used to do so much urban search and rescue that we do now, collapse structures. Um, firefighting used to be a little bit more one-dimensional. We'd go up to big burning structures and we'd, we'd just get at it as best we could. But now, as the role changes, as we do more animal rescues, as we do more wide area searches, as we do so many more technical rescue aspects, it's not just firefighting, the kit that we wear serves us in that capacity. It's multifaceted, it's multifunctional. Um, and I think that's some of the biggest changes I've seen. You know, we used to have to go back to stations and change out for different kit, depending on the type of incident that we were attending. But now the kit that we use is so much more diverse. And I think, um, that effectively enables us to, to serve our communities far better, um, and keeps us safer for longer as well. You know, some of the stuff and the contamination that we were exposed to was as a result of the poor PPE that we were wearing. And that's why when you see firefighters retire in their 40s and their 50s, they don't live past 60 or 70 because they're picking up these cancers. They're picking up all of these things that we didn't know better. We didn't know better about the end of it. Now we know better. We're doing better. And we see that with a lot of the PPE manufacturers, personal protective equipment manufacturers in the UK. I feel very privileged with that. I think we... We send a lot of our old kit overseas to third world countries. You know, we just sent six fire engines to Ukraine. Um, and the kit that they're using is stuff we've thrown away. You know, so I feel very privileged. And I don't know if it's the same in the US, but we're very lucky in the kit that we get provided. There's still so many things we need to solve. There's still so many solutions we need to overcome to keep our firefighters and our front line operators safe in the role that they do. Certainly with the contaminants and the carcinogens that we're experiencing with all these new build materials. But I know that we're on the right path and the developments, you know, from the original question with the helmets is just one example of how we are making that equipment safer for those people so that they can live their life, so they can go back to their families. And so that when they retire, they don't get a couple of years. Then maybe they have 20, 30 years, you know, you've been retired a little while now and our hopes to still be having these conversations with you when you're 80, when you're 90, because hopefully we've learned those lessons. Yeah. Well, and I think that's just it. I, you know, I want to be very clear with my, I have no skin in the game with a helmet because I'm not wearing it anymore. So it's, I'm just, you know, commenting from the outside in. But to me, when we talked about, you know, narcissism and ego, I think that factors into this as well. We talk about tradition here with the helmet and it's not tradition. Tradition is courage, you know, training, diligence, fitness. I mean, mm -hmm. all these things. And if it, if you want to look a certain way, then acknowledge that it's vanity it's not about you being a better firefighter yeah. you want to look yep. like a firefighter or the image of the firefighter but then you're then belittling nations that actually have better gear that facilitate you to make more rescues and be a more efficient firefighter and have more longevity in your career and ha you know, have a neck that's not completely fucked up after 15 years then own that that thing i'm actually going to stay in the <laughs> 1930s because i don't want to progress but understand you're a Navy SEAL with a tin helmet, you know, but it just drives me crazy when I see people, oh, it's the space helmet. 
you know, y- yes, okay, it looks like a space helmet, but it's so much better. And you can hear radio communication and you have all these visors when you do an extrication. Oh, mate, and we all are, these yeah, they're so built into everything that we do now, all of the comms features. So you can plug a lot of our helmets straight into our breathing apparatus sets, so our CB, uh, CBA. Um, they are just so much more effective, honestly, the way that they bind to your head. Um, ergonomically, like you said, that the pressure that they are not placing on your neck. Uh, and we all come in such shapes and sizes, you know, and we've all seen people being forced into equipment, into boots, into gloves, into helmets that are just not appropriate for them. And we lose people too early on in their careers because they aren't given the correct kit. And yeah, like we've said so many times during this conversation, you've got to be able to get over yourself and uh, understand the greater good behind these things. If we knew better back then, we'd have done differently. And now we know better, we've got to do better. 100%. All right. Well, that was a hell of a tangent from the closing questions, but I wanted to squeeze that in. So thank you. <laughs> Sorry, bro. <I'm laughs> no, no, it was me. That. I was the one that threw it at you because uh, you know, it needs to be said. And the thing is, it's one thing, you know, people just saying it in general, but when people are actually doing the very same job that you and I do, but you're in the UK wearing this stuff, having come from the kind of tortoiseshell helmet prior, you know, it's, it's an important perspective for people to yeah, hear. Man. Um, all I've right. got a bunch of the old ones. I've got all the old ones hanging up in the garage. But, you know, life's moved on. We've got to move on, brother. Yeah, what well, exactly? And that's where they should be. Like I said, with my axe, I am proud to have it. And it is a piece of history. But that's not tradition. And that's what we've got to remember. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? somebody I would advise to come on the podcast. I mean, we had a a couple of conversations about people that I'd connected with over there. Um, A guy called Jimmy Johnson, you know, Jimmy Johnson and his son, Jared Johnson. Uh, Jimmy Johnson's the next chief from Las Vegas. And I suppose it would be less interesting to people over there, um, perhaps than, than it's been responded to in the UK, but him and his son and, and the story of tradition and his journey into the fire service and how he, you know, he was a park ranger and then a Marine and just the way he articulates himself. I always say to people, you could have a great story, but if you don't know how to tell it, it's going to mean nothing. You know, that's why we've got to lean into being better orators, being better communicators, because otherwise your words die on your lips if you can't share them. And the way he speaks about it, uh, the passion that he shares, I think he would make for a fascinating conversation. Um, he would be somebody I would I would strongly encourage you to to connect with. I'd love to see you have Goggins on. I know you've had Jocko on a couple of times, and uh, Goggins is somebody that, again, no James Geary's never had a conversation with him. Pete Weaver's never. It's always going to be a different story and a different way to tell it. Um, and I'd be fascinated to hear the directions that a conversation with you would take it because I think you're great at what you do and and how you draw that out from people uh, would be a gift to everybody hearing that version of his story would be great yeah well thank you i mean he he was supposed to come on and i think they just kind of hit hit pause on all their interviews so we'll see if it happens um but uh yeah uh, they definitely had said it was going to be one of the few podcasts they were going to do so i'm just kind of being patient so we'll see what happens all right well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and stay hungry as well um what do you do to decompress I'm still trying to find it, brother. I'm still looking. Um, what do I do to decompress? I suppose I exercise, I swim, I listen to audiobooks. I, I try and find a way to entertain my monkey mind by giving it a menial task to do. And that's why I exercise and cross 
to has always been so good to me. It allows my productive mind to engage in something. And then the true me, the true P Wakefield, um, to just escape. Um, so yeah, I stay fit. I exercise. I listen to audiobooks. I'm still getting there, brother. I don't think I found the answer to that one yet. Um, I don't know if I was designed to decompress. I maybe, maybe I've just, I'm just like fishing around the outsides looking for the, looking for the relief valve. I've not found it yet. And I don't feel like, I don't feel anxious. I don't feel scared. I don't feel worried about not, not finding something. Cause you know, actually, you know what? I know what it is. Is this <laughs> sounds stupid, but it doesn't at all. Conversations connect, connecting with people. Um, and I think that's what, yeah, monetarily podcasters <laughs> just making it. I, I, I still work, you know, I'm not, uh, and that's, again, that's not been because it's not as successful as yours or anything like that, but. I was doing this long before I had a podcast, you know, having conversations with people, connecting with people is my way of decompressing because like we said earlier, in a world that is so connected through social media, we've actually never felt so alone, you know? So if I would, one thing to encourage people to do is have the patience and the ability to, to just try and sit with, with a loved one or sit with a close friend and, and try and force yourself to have one hour you know, a week of just conversation. There's not going to be a specific topic, you know, switch everything off around you. You and I are both put our phones on silent now and ask yourself, can I give this person hundred percent of my attention? That's what I find most rejuvenating. You know, if you know that most of the time you're giving somebody three out of 10, then what would seven out of 10 look like? What would nine out? Of, what would 10 out of 10 of your attention, your body language, your eye contact, you know, your rapport, um, your ability to, to make all of those non-verbal connections. Do that and see how much in sync you can get with somebody. See how much that rejuvenates you. That is something that rejuvenates me. Um, it's tough, you know, because you often have to strip away all of your layers of yourself to be able to have that conversation, but it's also so liberating. You know, it's like taking all your clothes off. You know, you, you get rid of all your bullshit and there you are, you're a naked child. You, and that's how you learn to love yourself again. You know, remember when you were a kid, you loved yourself. You know, you used to kiss the mirror and high five it when you were, when did we stop doing that? When did it not become cool? And I'm not talking about ego here, but yeah, I think when you can remove all of the clothing in your life, you can remove you as a firefighter, you as a successful podcast person, you as a business owner, you as a mom, you as a dad, and you're just fucking you. You're just James and you're just Pete. That's what I probably find as my decompression. Remembering that I'm more than what I do. I'm more than this illusion that I've created in my own mind, let alone anybody else's. Um, that's probably the, the way I decompress. Beautiful. I love it. Now, I definitely relate. I think that the, the being present is incredibly healing, but also, you, I don't know if you find this, it, it it's draining as well in a very, very positive way, but that really intentional listening, um, especially some of these, you know, more, uh, harrowing stories that people tell you know there's as there's the Fuck benefit yeah. of actually being present but then after you're like oof, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm tired now but that's a good time yeah. it's, it's you've connected with a human being and especially some of these people that trust you i mean we use that word safe space almost like patronizingly now but it's true for someone to be able to feel comfortable enough sitting across from you or looking through a screen and really pouring the heart out i mean that that is huge and i feel that very healing for my own mental health 
but also very draining in a positive way because I think that's just it. Active learning isn't TikTok. Active learning actually, excuse me, active listening actually takes energy. Mm. Oh, it does, mate, 100%. And, and like you said, the more you accidentally attract people with those powerful stories, it, it comes with a hell of a lot of weight. You know, you're like, shit, this person's entrusting that story to me. They are, they, they see that. And I always say to people when they say, well, you know, how long do you think I'll be able to talk about? I'm like, dude, we can go for fucking one hour or four hours is your story. I'm not going to edit it. I'm not going to cut it to death. I'm not going to, cause that's what's killed it. You know, you hear somebody on the radio and they're like, Hey, we're going to talk to James for a quick five seconds. And then blah, blah, blah. okay, bye James. And you're like, fuck, is that it? Is, is, have we really just summarized James in five seconds? Is that who he is? Um, and I think that's what there's so much value in it, you know, and it does take a lot. It's like when you go into somebody's house, it's almost like they're saying, Hey James, can I, uh, can I show you something in the cellar? And you're like, yeah, sure. Well, you've actually got to go there with them. You've got to travel down there as they talk you through the challenges and that you've got to go with that journey as well to remain connected and to share that empathy you've got to be willing to go there with them and that is draining but only through doing that will you help them you're the facilitator you're you're there with them you're there to support them um and the more we do that i think the more we will get rid of all these differences and all of these challenges that we face Absolutely. Well, for people listening, where can they find you online? Where can they find the Firefighters podcast? And then also, I know you do coaching through Stay Hungry as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the coaching thing really just happened by accident. Yeah, we did all the physical PT stuff, but that just came by accident from having these conversations with people and people wanted to share things. Um, I don't do as much coaching anymore because I think the podcast is the most powerful way that I can reach people. So the podcast itself, you can Google it, the Firefighters Podcast. Um, it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes, it's on absolutely everywhere. Um, it's Pete Wakefield, it'll say underneath it somewhere. Um, if people want to listen to it, we want to share it. If they find value in any of it, that don't be selfish share it with somebody else you know i always think it's so nice to be able to give somebody else that gift as well and i've referred people to so many of, of your podcasts and that's what it is you know it's, it's amazing again what you can achieve if you don't care who gets credit if i take a value from yours you take value from mine share it you know so that's where people can find me beautiful well pete i just want to say thank you we've been chatting for over two and a half hours now um it's <laughs> been amazing. i feel like we just scratched scratched the surface of your actual journey as well but uh yeah it's been an amazing conversation as i'll put in the intro for this obviously we've kind of interviewed each other a little bit because i know this is going to be on on both sides into a truly transatlantic conversation here but uh yeah i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today Mate, you too, brother. You, your work, I think your work rate, the amount of content you put out and your passion of sharing that, you know, without sounding corny and BS, you're, you, you have so many characteristics and so many things that you've done, which I aspire to. So I've taken so much value from this conversation. It's been surreal. It's been humbling. Um, but it's also made me realize that, you know, James is just a person. He puts his trousers on one leg at a time in the morning. So what you've created and what you're able to do with people hasn't given you an ego. It hasn't put you above anybody else. Um, and having this conversation today has inspired me to keep doing what I'm doing in my own good and bad way, in my own learning journey. I know you're still on yours. Uh, you may be at a different place, but I've taken some value from it. Thank you, brother. 